is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 1870. The world market is ruled by the president of the Standard Oil Combine, John Davison Rockefeller Sr. In this time, the most precious substances known to global commercial markets are petroleum, lacryma papaverus, mechanized weaponry, and credit. The collapse of Over and Gurney and Company and the resulting general crisis have brought many profound changes. The colossal expansion of the means of transportation and communication, ocean liners, railways, electrical telegraphy, the Suez Canal, has made a real-world market a fact. The former monopoly of Great Britain in industry has been challenged by a number of competing industrial countries. Infinitely greater and varied fields have been opened in all parts of the world for the investment of surplus European capital, so that it is far more widely distributed and local overspeculation may be more easily overcome. By means of all this, most of the old breeding grounds of crises and opportunities for their development have been eliminated or strongly reduced. At the same time, competition in the domestic market recedes before the cartels and combines, while in the foreign market it is restricted by protective tariffs, with which all major industrial powers, Great Britain excepted, surround themselves. But these protective tariffs are nothing but preparations for the ultimate general industrial war the only war left for industrial powers to wage. An industrial war. Moreover, of an extent the violence hitherto unimagined, one which shall determine final control over the world market. Eight to ten million soldiers will be at each other's throats, and in the process they will strip Europe barer than a swarm of locusts. The depredations of the Thirty Years' War compressed into four and extended over the entire continent. Famine, disease, the universal lapse into barbarism, both of the armies and the people, in the wake of acute misery. Irretrievable dislocation of our artificial system of trade, industry, and credit, ending in universal bankruptcy. Collapse of the old states and their conventional political wisdom, to the point where the crowns which adorned the heads of Europe's kings for centuries will roll into the gutters by the dozen, and no one will be around to pick them up. Only one consequence is absolutely certain. Universal exhaustion and the creation of the conditions for the ultimate victory of capital over those who once believed themselves to be its master. Okay, everybody, this is the episode that uh, people are buzzed about. People are excited. I hear everybody talking about it. I mean, it's because I keep like hyping it up and saying it's how awesome it's going to be. But, you know, uh, uh, I don't think we're going to disappoint on this one. No, I don't, I don't think so either. And, you know, obviously the uh, Watergate episode was a smash success. 
And, you know, how, how could you not be hyped for Iran Contra? It's like, as we'll show, it is basically a direct sequel. And a prequel. Yeah, and a prequel. Are we calling you the Admiral now? I I like that. I, that's what, you know. I, I like that, too. I was, you know, just deep in all these books about tankers. And I was like... Take the tanker pill. Get tanker pilled, bro. Yeah, I, I, I'm tanker pilled. And I was like, fuck, I'm going to call myself that Admiral from now on. I don't know if you can self-nickname, but, you know, if people listening to this want to start referring to me as that, I'll be perfectly satisfied with it. I'm like saying you're, uh, you know, listening to a fucking uh, a tanker engineer uh you know talk about how he's uh his experiences over like 40 years and how it's changed and like i'm listening to like new new age um you know like vangelis like music and i'm i'm like crying and stuff like reading about like you know the development of the oil industry in saudi arabia it's like yeah bro that that piece of music literally like brought tears to my eyes because like i don't know just you know, we'll, we'll be getting into some, like, tanker scams in this episode, but, like, reading about the tanker scam and then hearing this, like, kind of beautifully honest narrative from just, like, an old crusty sea dog, like, it just, it, it pierced me on a deep level. Oh, my God. And the best thing about it is from, like, a shell, um, like, corporate documentary about See, how good tankers are. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I wept at a shell commercial. Oh, it's a vintage shell commercial, though. So it's like you have your hipster, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, they age like fine wine. But, you know, uh, of course, Ed is here with me. I mean, uh, we, we just got to keep going. Like, I have no desire to, um, you know, do any regular interviews or anything. I mean, this is like, this is the, what this show is, is meant, has always been meant for. You know, it's all been leading up to this because, uh, you know, we just keep getting you know, more and more uh, outrageous on every episode in terms of some of the stuff that we're researching. <laughs> it's like... I know. <laughs> like, like, yeah, like, I don't know, some future 48-hour episode on, you know, the pipeline politics of Liberia or something. That's what it's heading towards. I, I'm, like, totally behind that 100%. Yeah. Uh, it's... Because it, we're going to, like, obviously, this is the... You pointed out that it was so funny that I... Uh, we call it like the Iran Contra episode, yeah. <laughs> but it really, it's like um, mostly about other stuff. Like we're gonna be talking about <laughs> like Iran Contra, like is obviously at the center of what we're discussing, but it it goes way way beyond that. And we so we did the same thing for like Watergate. It's like this mm-hmm. kind of isn't really a Iran Contra episode. It's kind of just like uh, you know the malfeasance and like the uh, corruption of of the entire uh, intelligence community <laughs> the around the world, world. <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah th- this episode will be spanning uh multiple continents uh multiple conflicts decades and have everything from uh corporate boardrooms to rambo-esque escapades so yeah you're you are I don't know how many people like know about Iran Contra and some of the details of that. Like, I was at Thanksgiving uh, yesterday, uh, and they were saying like in the '80s they had you know sat out on their friend's porch mm-hmm. uh, and watched like the the Iran Contra um, hearings. And I said, "Oh, so what did you like think of that at the time?" They're just like, "Ah, eh, you know." Uh, that that makes no sense to me because like those hearing transcripts are like some of the most fascinating things i've ever read 
it's really, it takes a lot to kind of like deep read them though. Like this is, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I'm always saying uh, about Fletcher Prouty and that secret team book is that I think that's what he does really well. And Fletcher Prouty was key to the research of this episode, by the way. Yeah, once again. Um, but you, you, people, you know, he got kind of put in this position where he's like the JFK confirmation guy because he was in the uh, Pentagon and the Joint Chiefs office. And he is, you know, despite not, you know, claiming to not have any uh, knowledge about it whatsoever. Uh, he, I got some questions about that. Yeah, I have a, you know, there's, there's, I'm interested in kind of his background. I know he has con- uh, some LaRouche connection of some kind. Oh. Um, I don't know the details though, uh, but nobody is really ask too much about kind of like what his motivations are for for doing this mm-hmm. um but he drops a lot of interesting hints and i just people seem to you know they're so focused on the jfk angle that they kind of like miss out on some of the stuff that he's actually trying to say i think uh yeah which he does a really good job at uh you know the thing that i really like him on that i commend him for is just kind of getting into like what we're doing of, of talking about like here's a memo from like the CIA like data this day uh, this time to this person's office and it's like how do you read that memo and you can't take it at face value and there's you know you have to contextualize it within kind of the corporate culture of the of the whole thing yeah th- this is something that I think would be kind of cool to do in the future is like to put together like a, a how-to guide on how to like read these kinds of memos and basically you know just because um, yeah like what once you understand you know like some of the terms the structure and you read a memo and you can put it into its pop proper uh, place and information will just start kind of pouring out from it when you do that. And I think it'd be kind of cool to like make something that shows people how to do that. Yeah, people start out and they, um, you know, pick up a memo or something like that, pick up a document, and then they read it. It's, it's on the face of it so opaque, but then you start looking about like, okay, like what happened the day before that? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what happened the day after that? Or, you know, who's working in this person's office besides them? And so you actually then, you have to go off and, and kind of double check those things. And then once you start doing that, you, you kind of like, you just end up with a lot more questions to kind of lead you in different places. Right. You, you get kind of a view of it as uh, an ecosystem. Like this was big in the JFK episode because we used a lot of, uh, you know, primary... Uh, CIA documents from their anti-Castro ops. And it's really vague, yeah, when you read it, but then you you look at like which office, uh, who the, you know, who's writing it, who's it going to, and you can start, yeah, piecing together kind of a system. Like you'll never get a completely clear idea, but you can, you get kind of a a skeletal outframe of something. Yeah, and that's, you know, one of the things I absolutely love about, about doing this because uh, you realize that there's a lot more unity in uh, kind of the history of all this than would uh, you know appears at first glance. That's that's one of the things that you know prevents people from kind of like getting into what is actually going on. Is you watch the Iran Contra hearings, I guess, and with those legal proceedings, it's always very limited in scope and focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we're looking at it, it's like. Okay, this is kind of connected to like everything else going on in the '80s in all these insane ways, right? Like you hear like some person rambles on for like 15 minutes about 
you know, an oil deal with Portugal. And you're just like, what the fuck does that have to do with anything? But you can like cross-reference it and a picture will start to emerge and it fits into a whole, a whole system. And yeah, I guess, you know, when you're just sitting on your front porch watching it, you're going to miss out on that. Yeah, so that's what we're here for. So we're like, you know, providing the... Um the commentary track for the Iran Contra, you know, hearing like depositions. <laughs> yeah, the silver key. Oh man, and we, you know, we can take all all the time that we want. I guess that you know we're we're still in the introductory kind of section here, so yeah. you know this is going to be a really long. We, we promised people twelve hours, so I feel like we can just yeah. So we're going to take our sweet time. Uh, yeah, you have to. You have to like this is the tutorial area where we're going to introduce you to the, like the game mechanics that you're going to have to right. master. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say I, I looked at my notes. Half of them are intensive, like detailing. The other half are bullet points, and it's twenty-five pages and fifteen thousand words. Which so I don't think that we'll be getting to everything, but I think we can knock out a big chunk of that. Yeah, I think we can knock out a big chunk of it too. Uh, you know, because, you know, we're not even going to, obviously, we're going to start here with, um, you know, the 19th century. We're going to go pretty far back mm-hmm. uh, in order to even sort of ramp this up. Because really, we're, we need to, if you want to understand any of this, is you have to go back and understand the opium wars. And you have to understand the <laughs> development of the oil industry. Uh, and you, you sort of have to understand, like, British, like, uh, imperialistic, like, politics. Um and it actually is extremely influential to a lot of things later. Right. I just want to introduce this idea real quick before we, you know, hop backwards in time. No, you take, we're going to take all the time. You're going to yeah, yeah. savor it. Okay, yeah. It, it, it's what we've been calling the Peter Dale Scott confluence. Yeah. And um, so, you know, Peter Dale Scott, he's such a king. Like, he's used his research so much. Um but he has this idea that he developed over, you know, basically 40 years of working on this kind of stuff. And the basic idea is that oil and drugs and guns all kind of run together. If you take like a spatial distribution of the earth and you map out like U.S. military bases or conflict zones and oil pipelines and drug routes, you will find that they kind of consistently cluster. And I think that, you know, it'd be cool. Like I haven't seen a visual of this, but I can, you know, off the top of my head, think of cases where this is true. So for Peter Del Scott, his argument is that this is a structural element, that these things are bound together in a very, very fundamental way that's not necessarily like linear, but, you know, kind of uh, it is reciprocal and bounces back on itself. It's a, a structural element in organizing the world that we live in. Yeah, I'm glad that you you mentioned this. I was just thinking about uh, talking about this too, because this is something we kept coming back, back on. I mean, I was reading about this in his book, Drugs, Oil, and War, um, mm-hmm. where he's, he, you know, a lot of the people who research this, they're like more investigatory mm-hmm. journalists is the kind of the background that they're coming from. And we were talking a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago about, uh, how a lot of these guys, like they have no theory, uh, in, ter- in like a formal sense of like, they don't read sociology or anything that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're, they're investigators first, but then they sort of realize as they're doing it that they need uh, some kind of like conceptual toolkit in order to start building, uh, you know, building all these things together. Right. Because it's just, it's like too much to just lay out all on the table and just like, you're not going to, 
you need a way to start putting it together, like a, a methodology or, or a way of thinking about it. And so the way that Peter Dale Scott, he comes up with a couple of concepts uh, that he uses in, in his books is that, you know, he, he, he talks about like, um, you know, the deep politics uh, and he sort of like has a kind of system that he develops uh, in order to start kind of getting into these things, you know? Yeah. And he, it, we find that in a lot of the cases were with these different like social, with these different investigators. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's a really important kind of like underestimated part of doing this kind of research or thinking about these things, you know? Yeah, yeah, you have to have mechanisms and models for even approaching it in a in a way that makes sense, I think. And so that's like something yeah that I always feel needs to be stressed is really important uh is a kind of the takeaway that I, I hope that people get yeah from some of this because it's like I'll read uh, people will uh, you know respond to me on directly on Twitter or something or sometimes I'll I'll see a comment somewhere on the internet of someone talking about the shows and uh, people kind of, you know, I see some people kind of complain about, uh, you know, how it's all just, they think what we're saying is that it's a, a huge conspiracy of like the CIA has done all it, blah, 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 blah. And it's, you're thinking about way too narrowly if you, if you kind of reduce it to that. It's, it's, that's not really the point. I mean, you, so that's why having kind of a more, more of a theory about it is really important. Yeah. And I think one thing that is kind of interesting about Peter Del Scott's like deep politics. Uh, so for him, like he's actually the guy who introduced the term deep state uh, or, may, you know, he borrowed it from like Turkey, the country. They, I think that was what they the investigators termed their uh, version of Gladio. Then they got like busted in the 90s. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's a deep state. But Peter Del Scott kind of conceives this as the dimension of the state that engages in the illegal activity. Well, here's what he says. I have that, I have his the actual, do you want me to read the quote of him saying? Yeah. He says... Uh, because I, yeah, please, because I got a little critique of it. He says, uh, to put it in terms I find more precise, he uses, his first concept is parapolitics, and he says... That's on, yeah. Uh, to put it in terms I find more precise, the exercise of power by covert means tends to metastasize into deep politics, an interplay of unacknowledged... Uh, forces over which the original parapolitical agent is no no longer has control. This is the heart of the analysis I'm making. Yeah. Okay. So I think he's absolutely correct on one side, but on the other side, he definitely kind of approaches it with this sort of uh, like a liberal attitude, where this is something that is aberrant. You know, like it, it's it's a malignant growth. It's a cancer, which is true, but that you could strip this thing out and everything would be OK. That's kind of how he is in the end. I'm not convinced that that's necessarily accurate. It seems to me that it's yeah the state no, go. Is, is upheld. Oh, no, go go ahead. I'm just saying go ahead. I'm agreeing. I'm just agreeing with you very strongly right now. I want to. Yeah, the, the, the state itself, you know, the legal infrastructure of the state, I think, is dependent on illegal activities to uphold it. it it's kind of a, an exception to itself that is necessary for itself to continue onwards. So I think that, like Peter Del Scott, it's a little too idealistic about the possibilities of what, you know, a liberal order could do. Because I see this as very kind of, uh, you know, ne necessary for the liberal state. This doesn't just arise out of a void. 
Yeah, and that's why it's going to be important here to kind of go back into the 19th century because I think there's some really strong demonstrations of that. But uh, I I agree with you, and I think he shares that with Seymour Hirsch a lot. And I was thinking about this the other the other day. I wanted to ask you, of like, who are the kind of like, you know, if you had to make a, a list of of kind of like the the saints of kind of investigating this or the patron saints of it, or, or you know who who are the real heroes or whatever, I don't know if you if you have a, a list because you know we've been use, using Alan Block has been very yeah helpful. Uh, I, I would definitely absolutely like put Alan Block on there because his research is just like so unparalleled. Um, yeah. I would put Peter Del Scott on there for sure. Especially like some of the work he's done on JFK is just mind blowing. I actually got a unpublished book of his. He wrote it in like 1970 on the JFK assassination. Like, I can't believe that this was written in 1970. Like this is like right alongside the same time as like, you know, Jim Garrison doing his investigation and Peter Dell Scott's like digging into Texas oil, this whole completely other approach. It blows my mind. So yeah, he's definitely on there. And you know, we got a lot of confirmation on that now too, from doing this one. It's like, I, we talked about that in the JFK episode, but now it's like, yeah, it became more important now knowing some of the stuff that we were looking into. Right, because earlier it was just like, oh, this is just like an interesting social environment, but we've kind of figured out how it's structurally entangled. Um, uh, Another guy I would put on the list would be Douglas Valentine. Uh, He wrote the book on the Phoenix program in Vietnam. um, And also some really good stuff. He he has one that I like. And CIA drug trafficking. Yeah, the CIA is organized crime, which is like, uh, (laughs) you know, the title of it is provocative and it sounds you know like a kind of zany thing to thing to say like yeah 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 you know they're they're no blood for oil kind of stuff right uh, you know it's crime it's like but you know yeah we're gonna we're gonna be kind of breaking that down a lot more uh into what that actually means yeah <laughs> uh it, he, he's funny though because in order to write the um uh yeah, the the Phoenix program book. He just like went up and like befriended a whole bunch of people who were involved in the Phoenix program and got them to tell him stories, and then he just wrote it into a book and sold it. Yeah, and that's horrifying. That's like a horrifying, you know, tale of uh, that's like nightmare fuel. Yeah, they were like crucifying people and stuff. And then you know, I like to add, uh, you know, just Seymour Hirsch, and it's it's kind of like he has that. Uh, probably worse than Peter Dale Scott, more of the idealistic kind of liberal problem where he, 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 he it ends up where I do think that he lets himself get uh, used by some of the sources where he doesn't really, uh, you know, question some of the things that they're saying enough. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't think it's like, you know, when we were talking in the, the Nixon episode about, um, you know, uh, Bob Woodward, and it's it's clear that Bob Woodward is like a sociopath or something. Yeah, or Jack Anderson. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I don't I don't feel like Seymour Hirsch is is in that doing the same thing. I think he's just kind of like naive in a way, and it's sort of like that's kind of respectable because he does put out some stuff that has like really, uh, you know, I was looking at one that he wrote last night. Actually, ended up being really useful and provided. Uh, kind of like a bunch of clues that I had, uh, you know, not even found out about before. Yeah, I didn't know about that either. <laughs> so that was all fresh info. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think those are those are you know there are definitely some people out there who investigate. And that's that's one of the things too. Is like, yeah. none of this is like secret. Uh, you know, you have to understand that. I think that that's something I've I've sometimes someone will try to say to me. They'll you know come out of nowhere, some weird little Twitter account, and they'll, and they'll be like, "You think that you've discovered all this stuff, but you know, I read uh, you know this and blah blah blah." And it's, it's like all this is completely public uh, information. Yeah. The, the the one thing um, we will be using in this episode uh, documents that I got through Freedom of Information Act. So that wasn't public, but it is public now. Um, and I, you know, I mentioned this on Twitter, and people were like responding, like, "How do you know that they just don't write those to, you know, throw people off the trail?" And it's like, what do you even say to that? Like, you know, it's it's it, there's so much. Uh, kind of documentary like build up it really is like you have to like wade through the garbage heap to like get stuff uh, and you know yeah exactly like like they're going to be faking you know like the you know because I got 2,000 pages and the vast majority of it is literally just like junk yeah you, you just pure junk I don't think they're worried about that at all it's like uh, that's one of the things because we were looking at. Uh, I was reviewing this this dumb book, um, you know, Family of Secrets, the George Bush one about like JFK and stuff. And it's like, you know, the whole thing with that was that somebody just kind of discovered a document uh, when Bush became uh, was going to become DCI in the seventies, and the document said, uh, you know, that he had a connection to the CIA before that he had been a, a part of some operation that he had knowledge of some of the stuff that the CIA was doing in, in regards to this this certain thing and then you know that kind of triggered uh you know this this journalist asking George Bush about it and George Bush like denied it and then the story came out about it and then it kind of like ended up being true so George Bush had to say like oh actually that's true but you know it was no big deal and you know it's uh you know, so they're not really worried about it because really all this stuff is out there. It's like, you know, it gets declassified and it's just like sitting there and really pe- there's just a very small handful of people out in the world who will just sit around and go through the stuff that's being declassified and it's like a, a enormous, uh, inconceivable volume of documents that, you know, they're not worried about it. Yeah. You know, they don't expect people to go through it and, you know, they're not, it's, it's it almost... You know, in, uh, humanly impossible to kind of cross-reference all this information and you know make anything out of it. It's like going through shredded documents, but all of the shredded documents are of you know the the individual shreds are full documents. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's one thing that like you know people kind of poke fun at like the JFK research community, but you can find forums where people are doing that, where it's you know people are dedicating years of their life with just like the most mundane documents like piecing little things together. And I got nothing but like admiration for that. Cuz that's not it doesn't work like when they declassify documents, it's not like they uh, come out and make like a list for you and say like here are the the juicy things from these new declassified documents. It's like <laughs> no, here's like ten thousand pages of of just like random shit, and we're not going to say shit about it, and you know not going to even tell you that it exists. Yeah, yeah. So, so many of the uh, declassified documents are just like FBI telexes talking about like completely normal businessmen, you know, like, cause you know, they have like informants and they're finding everything out. And it's like, they dump all of this into the pile, you know? Yeah. 
And that's kind of like more more of the way that things work. Uh, I think we've kind of like talked about conceptualizing things in, in this way uh, before, but it's, it is an important point to pick up on is that they're not really like out here censoring stuff and like killing people for, you know, knowing things really. It's like, yeah, it, it's there, there might be like a few cases where something like that happens, but it's not, you know, but yeah, it's more like someone is in your operation or whatever. And they're, you know, f- you know having an issue and you know, it's like, but you know, they're, they're not going to like kill journalists or something really. Well, you know, they do kill journalists, but <laughs> usually not for, um, yeah, not for going through declassified kind of documents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the few instances where I think you could like really concretely confirm that like oh this journalist definitely died uh, through some kind of f- f- funny business. It's usually when they're like dealing with something that is like very high level and you know not declassified. Yeah, I mean, so we're gonna you know when we talk about some of the kind of sociological, theoretical, like economic kind of ideas uh, behind all these structures. Uh, just, you know, that's something that's something key to kind of play into, pick up. But, you know, I, I kind of want to get into this this now with the oil stuff. Yeah. Um, just because, like, the oil stuff, uh, this, well, opium and, and oil in the 19th century, and it's like, I that's kind of been a huge rabbit hole that I got sucked down into mm-hmm. uh, doing this that is just like, you know, caused me to develop this insane, uh, you know, personality disorder of like loving oil tankers. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, tanker. This is the tanker pill part. No, this is like, yeah, I mean, this is kind of like the beginning of the tanker pill. You know, I think the tanker wars are the tanker pill. You, you have to you have to swim in oil to get to the tanker pill. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Because obviously, uh, you know, you may know about Iran Contra is that uh, it deals with you know the Colombians and, and cocaine. Uh, that's that's one part of it, and you may know something that people always talk about is uh, like in Afghanistan. There's pictures of like the U.S. soldiers and they're in the poppy fields in Afghanistan, and yeah. you know, it's that's kind of been like an old liberal kind of trope that they've done, like uh, Michael Moore kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, uh, of you know pu- putting up that picture and being like really makes you think, man. <laughs> uh, that that kind of thing. But it, there's a it's it, it, it works in a it's way crazier than than that. It's not just that like they're growing uh, poppies and you know the soldiers are protecting it. These a lot of the the public reasons they state for it are economic usually, like mm-hmm. the poppy. Uh, you know, field farmers and stuff is they they need this for their living. Like this is how they make money. If we don't let them do this, then you know they're all going to be poor. And if they're poor, they're going to go and like join the militia or something, right? Um, right. But there's like a much deeper kind of like historical politics behind this this kind of thing. So that's important to be aware of. Yeah. Um, because really, the opium trade, as as we find out, uh, goes back kind of a, a long way. Um, before the Opium War, even, uh, but it, it does go back to the Dutch, uh, and, and that was kind of like the first, I guess, European power who mm-hmm. started selling opium and trading it, like on on the high seas, right? Um, right. And and 
No, yeah. It's, I, I find that also to be kind of interesting because do, do you know Giovanni Arigi, I think is how you pronounce his name? Oh, I mean, I'm overwhelmed on names now. I barely even know my own name. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, well, he... I'm, I'm just going to summarize briefly. He's, he's got a uh, kind of a, a world system model based on uh, the rise and fall of like uh, trading empires and shows how they kind of go through these like similar kind of economic cycles. And something that I found really interesting is he, he begins with the Dutch and shows how like they go through the cycle. And then, you know, there's like structural elements that lead to the British and they go through the cycle and leads to the United States and it goes through the cycle. And these will all be, you know, no. key. <laughs> you know, that that's it, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. There's a, there's totally a cycle to it that has been going on for a really long time because we're going to see the Dutch reappear in a very important way in the oil industry too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... That's that's kind of like the the very primordial beginnings of kind of the international, uh, you know, trade in opium, right? Is 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 those very early uh, right. kind of like Dutch missions that are going back like centuries, and but it wasn't like a big industry or anything at that time because you know that was that was kind of like in the very early, uh, you know, 16th century, 17th century, like proto-capitalistic kind of like yeah. the develop the initial development of kind of the global economy where it's really starting to you know Asia's starting to come in and get connected to the West, right? Yeah, this is like a, the the mercant. You know, would it even be mercantile? You know, people would probably call it mercantile, but I don't even know that that category is questionable in its validity in my mind. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Well, we can get into that some other time. <laughs> Well, we can get into whenever, man. It's like we can get into it now because it's like yeah. th- it is important, uh, even though this isn't the main the main part uh, about it all. But you, you, people have been kind of like thinking about a lot of these issues of globalism for a long time and a lot longer than people generally would think. It's like because you can go back to David Hume and you, you read him, and he's like talking about labor competition in you know between England and China and India. And, you know, yeah. uh, like people picked up on that and were able to kind of work out the consequences of global trade. And they were really able to see like, okay, well, if the wage is the price of labor and, you know, the price is determined by supply and demand and, you know, uh, India and China have a lot of supply, then, you know, that's, that's going to mean that the, the more that we deal with you know, these countries, the closer they would bring with them and trade, the more that, you know, our navigation technology and ships and stuff improve, uh, you know, that's that's going to have a lot of long-term economic consequences. So that's kind of like the whole process of modernity going back to the 16th century as it's developed as, uh, you know, those, those kinds of things were put into motion by uh, these little European countries, mm-hmm. these trading republics, you know, the, the Netherlands. Uh, in in the English yeah. and then America and it's like the, the Italians yeah or the v- Venetians I should say yeah Vene- <laughs> uh, yeah it's like those have been developing now for two or three hundred years and it's sort of like we're you know we're not past that or beyond that or whatever it's like this is what they uh, were trying to foresee I guess talk about is like we're living in that world now it's it's kind of a Weird to think about because how long this this really goes back. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, so, so when when the Dutch are trading 
you know, the, the opium. It's my impression that early on this is mostly for medicinal uses, right? Yeah. And that's always kind of the tension in the whole, you know, struggle to control opium, right? Is It's always like, um, you know, there's a certain amount that has to be allowed for uh, medicinal or scientific use, right? Yeah. And then what, you know, so that's, it's very limited in that way. And part of it is also scientific because, you know, people, uh, you know, you have to process opium into different kinds of products, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, develop different ways of kind of administering it to people, uh, using it. And so it does, it's not like the Dutch know how to make heroin. So that, <laughs> or, or they don't even know how to make, you know, um, you know, they don't know how to make narcotics really out of, out of opium at that point. That happens in the 19th century when chemistry and English chemists are, are kind of, uh, you know, coming into, into kind of the scientific world and, and modernizing it. They learn how to do that. They, they, they're the ones who kind of discover how to like make narcotics out of opium. And that's it sort of changes the game a bit. Hmm. Because then that's when the opium wars happen. And I didn't even know. I mean, how much did you know about the opium wars? Uh, um, literally nothing. Yeah. I, I, I still do not know that much. I think that you definitely uh, went down that rabbit hole a bit more than I did. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, obviously, I know some people listening out there read about the opium wars. I'm not saying like literally nobody knows about it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I personally uh, didn't really know a whole lot uh, about how they sort of went down or what they were really about. Um, because really it starts out a bit earlier in the 18th century um, is kind of sets it all up uh, mm-hmm. how the, the opium wars end up actually happening because that's, that's kind of when the English, the, the East India company, they decide like, okay, you know, we got our old friends, the East India company. Yeah. The East India Company is like probably one of the most fucked up uh, things to ever happen in human history. It's like it, it, it easily was like the pivot of world history. I, I even like I want to do like a huge show, but we we should do that East East India Company. Yeah, I, I would love to. You know, because every every time we run into it, like I learn more, but I still feel like my knowledge of it's really kind of fragmented, and I, I would love to see it too, like cohesively. Mine too, but it's hard because, you know, I was trying to get a bibliography going for it. I was looking at like books out there. It's like, there's not really a, a singular kind of like book about the East India Company. Um, you know, that's surprising. But you, I think the, yeah, it is surprising. I mean, it, it's such a huge topic. But, you know, there's people who want to get focused on different stuff uh, about it. And then, you know, you have the post colonial kind of like research that really, uh, you know, doesn't focus on kind of the, the financial politics, you know, uh, domestically for, for, you know, so it's like people have their own angles on it and you know, there's not really a synthetic kind of like history of the, of the whole thing, mm-hmm. um, which makes it hard. But so what we would have to do would really to go back to the, the records of the East India Company, which you can get, which are like, you know, numerous, numerous volumes. Hmm. Hmm. That's so. That's what it sounds like, right? Right up your alley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got gears turning right now. Yeah, but you know the so the East Indian Company just you know they want to in the late 18th century is they want to kind of go over um, and set up an embassy in China. Mm-hmm. Um, 
for the first time and people hadn't really been there. And, you know, this is a time kind of like when the, uh, the East is getting opened up and, and later we have a lot of the European countries competing to get into um, Japan. And of course, America, you know, we, we go over there with a the warship and kind of like say, no, fuck you, you're going to open up now. Uh, yeah, this is a pretty, pretty uh, generic American warship move. Yeah, um, you know, Panama, we'll be talking about that. Yeah. Um, but that's the, so the British kind of like, they come up with a little scheme for that and they, they deck out this like huge voyage, right? Um, to go. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of like insane. They, you know, they have like mul- like two ships, uh, some of the biggest war, the, and the warship is actually an East India Company ship. You know, they're the East India Company ships are called like East India Men. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, and actually, kind of like the East India kind of like Navy is more powerful was in a way than the the English Navy at that time. Um, where, where do they train these people? Do, is this all done in England? Like, do they? Are there massive? Were there massive East India bases? Yeah, and you know, there's an East India Company College. Yeah, there's an East India Company College. First of all, um, but that's one of the things I. Where, where Darwin and Malthus were, were there, right? Uh, yeah, Malthus. Uh, Malthus taught there. Yeah, um, I don't know if Darwin. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that I was looking for. Was I really wanted to find a book about the East India Company College and the influence of that because it did look like a lot of kind of uh, important. Uh, economists were involved in that, and there are some interesting characters that I saw. It's like I wanted to learn more about that, but then you know, there's not there's not really a book about that or anything that I was able to find. And so I think we're going to have to go back, you know, uh, actually find the the records of the East India Company College or whatever, and and see what we can source out. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it. Uh, but uh, hopefully they're on Google Books. <laughs> I fucking hate Google Books, man. Don't even get me started. <laughs> but. You know, I read all the depositions, <laughs> but you know, they, they you know they they block so much stuff just because they don't have the copy. You know they don't know who owns the rights to the books, so they can't release them. So it's like it's crazy that everything just stays locked up because they don't even know who owns any of it. But all the you know because all the companies are out of business and shit. Yeah, fuck fuck them. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So basically, they they the English they they are trying to go back, um, get into China really early on in the late 18th century. Um, they send a mission over there, and it kind of gets messed up because ultimately the delegation they won't bow, they won't uh, kowtow to the Chinese emperor when they meet him. Yeah. So they go on this huge fucking voyage, right? And uh, they try to get in. They try to get in there, and then it's like they can't. They're you know they're kicked out. There's the emperor says like, no, if you're not gonna like bow to the emperor, you can fucking leave. Um, so uh, that doesn't really go the way that they actually want it to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the way that they kind of respond um, to that is is with with the two conflicts, the the opium wars. There's two of them. The first one. Uh, you know, the the second one is really the, the decisive victory, and they actually collaborate with the French in that. So it's the French and the and the British against China, and China is obviously uh, kind of like way behind in, in military uh, technical development at that point, um, which I guess g- good for them because uh, you know it, it didn't really make us any better. But you know, I guess they had to pay the price for you know not not having all these uh, crazy new weapons by 
uh, kind of getting fucked in this situation, right? Yeah, yeah, which is interesting though, because they they develop like gunpowder and compasses and paper and you know all, all of that kind of stuff prior to the West. So I, I would like to know why they fell behind the way they did. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like they they have a very bureaucratic system. I don't know much about that. Uh, you know, love would love to know more. Uh, this is just like the deepest background, I guess. Though for for what ends up happening, though, because this is this is where you know, I guess sets the stage for um, so much that comes later, and for even modern relations with China, because basically we use our superiority over them in you know our military sense with our, our warships and where Britain does, the East India Company does, and basically the whole point is to to kind of get down to it is that we're imposing the free market on them in order to force them to buy uh, opium from India because um, that's where the opium is grown. I mean, I always had kind of a notion, I guess, that uh, the the opium came from China and that, you know, there was a Chinese kind of thing and that, because you always... That, that was my idea as well. Yeah, because you always see, like, that's the, the depiction of the Chinese in, in, in media, Um in the 19th century, yeah, 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 in the American like West too, they're always smoking opium popes. The the immigrants, yeah, they have the the opium dens that the Chinese immigrants set up when they come over. Uh, yeah, you always yeah, uh, you, all that good stuff. You always see that, and uh, it's like the reason that the Chinese were associated with opium is because well, uh, the British like basically made them buy opium, <laughs> and the Chinese emperor he wanted to keep the. Um, the opium out. He wanted to keep the the English out. He wanted to keep the East India Company out, and the 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 opium is grown over in Bengal in India and in the um, East India Company controlled territories, right? Right. Because um, obviously uh, Britain needed to control India and, and own India for some for some reason. And uh, when they were there, they they found these guys grown opium, and you know they they're like, "Cool opium. Uh, what should we do with this?" And, uh, you know, they, they wanted to come up with something. Obviously, they don't want to go back and sell opium to in the European markets so much. And there's like, you know, we don't want to ship it all the way out there and we don't want to get people on the opium. And, you know, that's not that great. But so who, where can we go to sell opium? <laughs> there, there's something funny about the fact that it's like, oh, here's this thing. We have to sell it. Like, yeah, <laughs> there's no, like, it's not an option. Like, they're going to have to sell it <laughs> no absolutely uh that's like the the craziest thing about it because it's like they can't just help themselves and, and say like well why don't we just let the 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 bengalese like uh do their own opium stuff that they've been doing for a long time and you know uh, they have their own culture but we're not going to interfere with that and you know it doesn't seem like that big of a thing they're they're sort of like how can we turn this into a huge opium plantation and then ship all the opium around the world and make money <laughs> off of it and it's like it, we have to do that. If we can't do that, then what's the point yeah. of even owning India, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's fucked up. Yeah, and it's fucked up because then their solution to that is like go to China. And they're like, why don't you buy some opium from us, assholes? And then uh, China is obviously not too keen to uh, have kind of this addictive kind of substance released into um, their territory, right? Because uh, you know. It's it's like literally. Imagine if it was fentanyl or something. Imagine if uh, you know there was a country out there that. Imagine if China, um, if we told China we don't want your fentanyl, right? 
And then yeah. <laughs> China sent its like navy over and invaded the United States and said, "Oh no, you'll be buying our fentanyl, whether you like it or not." This is I, I, I'm pretty sure that people believe that is literally what is happening right now. That's the opium wars. <laughs> that's what the British did. No, no. I know, but I know, but it's like yeah. that's what people think is happening. But trust me. I don't know about that because what ends up happening in the Opium Wars, how the Opium Wars actually conclude is basically, so the emperor has uh, a winter palace and a summer palace, right? And the winter palace is like the administrative capital of, of China. It's like the public capital. And the winter palace is like the emperor's like public palace where like the government works out of, right? Yeah. And then he has a summer palace, which is like his private residence, and he, uh, you know, the emperor has traditionally set up the summer palace, right, and designed it and made it, you know, reflective of of his his tastes and his interests. And so, the summer palace is like the Versailles of like ancient China, mm. and it's like this huge, like magnificent, like sprawling complex, and it's like a microcosm of the whole universe. And the Chinese uh, emperor like has arranged it so that there's like a garden of every kind of variety of like garden design on the face of the earth and the, like all the different architectural styles on in the world and you know created like this magnificent kind of like treasure house of like all the most precious things in China right right so how the way that the the british win the opium wars is just they burn the fucking shit they burn it down um they burn down the the emperor's uh, summer palace the most treasured kind of like uh, architectural marvel of, of ancient China with all of the most precious things in China. And uh, they basically do that in order, uh, because they're mad um, because the Chinese didn't respect their their kind of like flag of, of uh, truce, right? Because they were sending some little agents around mm-hmm. and uh, under the, fl- the, the flag of truce and the Chinese just captured them and, and you know, uh, beat them up. Um, you know, and uh, so the British were were obviously very upset about that, taken aback. They're like, "You can't do that," you know. That, how improper, how rude. Um, so <laughs> you know, they need to like learn a proportionate uh, lesson. We need to do something back to them, right? What, what should we do? Well, let's burn down the Emperor's Summer Palace, right? So they they start yeah, definitely proportional. They start um, looting the palace and they they set it on fire and they don't even manage to loot it properly because the fire starts and then you know the people doing the looting are like using ancient tapestries to try to put out the fire. <laughs> um, so like most of it just gets like destroyed um, and then you know it, it's actually the descendant. Uh, I don't know. If, People probably know the the Elgin marbles of that the Britain took back um, out of out of Egypt when they were there. You know these these precious ancient kind of like sculptures um, that are still kind of controversial about who who actually owns them. But uh, it was his descendant of the of the the guy of Elgin who took the marbles back, who was now burning down the Summer Palace, which I don't know seems oh, really? yeah seems kind of I, I missed that in the notes. It seems kind of fitting, I guess, as you know, poetic that this continuation. But you know, they burn it down, and then yeah. basically the they you know it kind of like completely crushes the Chinese spiritually and like culturally and like you know into submission. Um, and the terms that the British impose are basically like. First of all, you know, you have to have our, our uh, economic liberal uh, situation where we're going to sell you opium and you have to buy it. That's, you know, good for you. And then also uh, you have to pay for the cost of us waging this war against you. And then also, uh, you know, 
all English subjects are going to have complete immunity as they move around the um, the Chinese the territories. Is like you can't prosecute them or exercise any police authority over them, right? Right. Um, you know, you have to tell us about it, and we'll we'll take care of it, right? So that uh, and then uh, to kind of top it all off is that that's how they get Hong Kong. So. <laughs> Mm. Which I I told you this, but I just now it's like that's Nick Lands. That's like the real neo reactionary kind of like you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, Sovcorp Hong Kong kind of deal. It's like where does that come from? Oh well, it actually comes from hyper capitalism of of the opium wars. <laughs> so right. Well, N- Nick Land is admittedly you know he, he's openly in support of the East India Company. Is he really? Oh, oh. you know, so it makes sense. <laughs> oh yeah, he loves it. Oh my god. Um, I don't know if you guys are Nick Land fans. I don't know, maybe reconsider um, some of that stuff. But um, so that that's sort of like how the the global opium trade starts is because now in England has a big market for that, and that's that's why in the old west and stuff you see a movie and there's a western and there's like the opium den in San Francisco or something. That's why the Chinese are uh, you know we have that historical association because basically we get the British get the Chinese addicted to opium and then they start coming over to the west coast of the United States and they're addicted to opium and they have opium. So that's so basically that's how the opium trade kind of starts spreading around Southeast Asia and eventually comes over to the United States, right? Right. Right. And it's also worth pointing out that at this time, um, the the British are letting, yeah, like you kind of mentioned earlier, they're letting a small amount come into Europe, but it's only for like medicinal uh, purposes, really. So they, they peddle it as like an addictive drug in China, but at home they use it, you know, as like proto-morphine. But even like more interesting, like the thing I actually want to talk about, and you know, the opium wars is not the point of the show. Um, I just think it's like a funny uh, kind of backdrop to this. But what I was finding most interesting was kind of then the subsequent struggle to control opium uh, that arises out of that, and how like recalcitrant, uh, you know, how like um, you know, uh, inflexible the British are about the idea of stopping the opium trade, the colonial opium trade, and then also because we were looking at. Um, how the DEA gets started, right? And that's kind of like where the DEA comes from is basically the Chinese bringing opium to the United States, right? Uh, so I, I find that that whole history really uh, interesting. I don't know, because we were looking at all those those uh, early precursors to the, the DEA. Yeah, so... Um there's there's probably several ways to go about this. But I, I guess one thing to mention is that as time goes on, kind of the logic of the, the drug trade, like it stays the same, but its location kind of shifts. And at some point, you know, like Pakistan, which, you know, part of India, that or, you know, allegedly, you know, all these territories change. But uh, Turkey at one point really kind of overtakes what we today call Pakistan as your major um, producer of poppies. And so this sets up what, you know, we now know as the French connection, which you can also call it like the Lebanese connection. Because the way that it works is that the poppy was grown in Turkey and then Lebanese traders would um, ship it to refining factories in Europe. And so basically what they would do is that uh, European gangsters, usually Corsicans, would uh, enter into agreements with Lebanese gangsters and kind of set up this whole uh, pipeline. And this is really where you see a lot of the illicit spread of heroin, which gets refined usually in like Marseille. Yeah. Um, 
you know, across into Europe. And well, you know, what happens actually? When, what happens? I, hold on. You know, I just I find it interesting um, that the U.S. Just to mention, I want to put it in there is that the U.S. was involved in the in kind of some of the events of the Opium War, uh, the Second Opium War. Okay. Um, and so they actually had kind of a share in that. And I guess uh, one thing to mention too is that it does kind of backfire in, in the U.S. in, in that way, right? Because I guess I just ha- I have this. I found this figure that I wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just point out is that in 1890, the annual importation of prepared opium in San Francisco was uh, 28,662 metric tons, and that holy shit provided a, in in uh, I guess contemporary dollars. Uh, back then, it was seven, uh, you know, seven hundred fifty-eight thousand dollars in revenue to the federal government. So the the federal government actually got uh, the U.S. government got a cut of the opium that was coming in. Jesus, even even back then, and yeah, so yeah, that's crazy. And this is eighteen ninety, so this is exactly what. Yeah, what, so this is the same thing with the the French, I, su- I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Um, basic the Corsican gangsters are very closely intertwined with the French government and then a little bit later the French intelligence services. And a lot of this happens because they kind of turn a, a blind eye to these uh, the, you know these trade networks that are happening. And this is kind of the beginning of you know when we talk about like intelligence agencies and drugs. Last episode we talked about the OSS in Burma. This is another hot spot where this happens and it's very similar you know to what we just talked about with um, China and uh, and opium but so at the end of World War II uh, Lucky Luciano who had worked with the OSS actually in, in uh, the invasion of Italy you know the against Mussolini he goes and he forms an alliance with the Corsican gangsters and they begin to import the drug to America and so that's when we talk about the French connection, that's specifically uh, what, we, what we're talking about. So you have what's called the French connection, which is uh, America to France. And then you have the Lebanese connection, which is uh, France, Lebanon, Turkey. And in Lebanon, um, you really kind of have the same dynamic of intelligence services kind of getting in bed with it. Um, the place where gangsters tended to wash their money was a casino called the Casino du Liban. And this was like kind of like the, the crown jewel of like Beirut. This is where everybody hung out. It's where all the like the like jet setters would go. Uh, the world's, you know, richest people would go play there. And this is also where all the gangsters went. Um, Meyer Lansky owned a share of this casino, right? No, no. So, um, and the casino itself was owned by a bank called Intrabank, which became the biggest bank in the Middle East before it like collapsed in the 1960s for like shady shit. But this bank was like the CIA's primary, like very early on their primary banking apparatus, you know? So, um, well, a lot of interesting stuff there. Uh, another director of Interbank was a guy named Ed Hom, and he'll become important pretty, you know, later on in this. But uh, so yeah, um, a lot of this flowed to New York City, but it also flowed down south, uh, Miami, where there was an alliance with the mob boss of Florida, Santo Traficante, and. Um, you know, we talked about in the last episode how when in 1964, 
um, Calafino and Haig started phasing out the Cuban operations, right? Because when this is when they're in the in the Pentagon and the, they're working in yeah, that's part of what they're doing for um, right. Cyrus Vance. Yeah, yeah. So basically, the way that it works is we started phasing out like overt support for the Cubans, and, and but you know, so yeah, we we phased them out and we kind of like cut a lot of support for them. We still like uh, really kind of supported them a bit, but not really too much. So a lot of these uh, you know formerly CIA trained Cubans turned to the drug trade, and a lot of them um, went to work for Santo Traficante, and so. When we talk about like heroin in the United States in the late 60s, it's really coming through that channel. Uh, it's a very interesting legacy of like the whole Bay of Pigs period. Um, but in the late 60s, Johnson sets up uh, one of the forerunners to the um, to the DEA. It's the Bureau of uh, Dangerous Drugs and Narcotics. Yeah, I find that or no, the the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. I find that interesting too, um, because it was something that kind of like JFK set in motion. But I guess I don't know it it, it becomes like this huge problem around them. But this is like kind of also part of the of the 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 war on poverty kind of stuff that mm-hmm. uh, Johnson is doing. And I find it interesting also because uh, I don't know how much we talked about this in the Nixon episode and stuff, but, you know, Califino at that time is is the kind of domestic policy uh, runner on um, in the in the Johnson administration. So he's sort of like the guy who goes to Congress and stuff and, like, coordinates with the uh, this, the different congressmen's, like, uh, staff to kind of get them to support bills and, and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, he's doing a lot of the Great Society stuff with the... Uh, Getting the the cybernetic like crazy uh, Ford Foundation Ray plans, yeah, he's involved in that. Um, uh, he's a weird guy. You, people don't hear about him much. He came up again. You can see him in the Carter administration for some reason. It's like there's some weird stuff with him. Yeah, he he bounces around a lot without any real consistency. But yeah, that's that. You know, then so Johnson kind of sets up that that precursor. Right. Yeah, and it, it's. It's, it follows like a kind of earlier one, but it's a lot more robust. And it's because you do start to have like a pretty serious drug problem in America in this time period. And even like and going back so to 1900, in, yeah. In, even going back to like 1900, yeah. it's like that's when it starts kind of people become aware of opium going on in the United States. Uh, and you start getting the, there's apparently mm-hmm. in like, uh, you know, early 20, like 1900, 1901 or something, it's like uh, 10 opium dens reported in New York City and it was kind of like a huge scandal. <laughs> 10. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, I don't know how many like crack houses or whatever are in New York City today. So it's like, <laughs> right, it, right. our problems on this stuff kind of start early. Right. And it was actually, I have the, I have some of the kind of specifics here in my, in my notes. It's like, uh, it starts with the Harrison Act in 1915, um, and that's actually the kind of the beginning of our attempt to do a war on drugs kind of thing. Uh, and really early on, it's like these the agents and stuff. They have very limited powers. It's like they're they're not doing a whole lot. It's like they seized 44 pounds of opium, uh, you know, in like their first year. Um, uh, you know, it's it wasn't that serious of a of an organization. Yeah, it, it was like the the Bureau of Narcotics and Drugs at that point, right? 
Or is that a little bit lighter? Yeah, no, no, that's, uh, it's like there's even uh, ones that are before that. Remember, this is like when they were trying to kind of control the income of it because there was a whole aspect of, uh, people actually at that time, um, you know, had the constitutional principle of like, you can't stop people, you can't do a drug war mm. because people have a right to do drugs, right? But that, you know, that was, yeah. no, they, 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 they really did. Uh, in 1916, the, the critical question of who could control the use of drugs in a free society went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, Pittsburgh doctor had prescribed a 16th of an ounce of morphine sulfate for an addict. Uh, and then they took it to the Supreme Court and the government, uh, you know, they, they ruled that um, any regulation of medicine was a power reserved for the states. Mm, okay. And uh, actually, Justice, uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, and then on the Supreme Court, uh, you know, supported that the decisions by lower courts, uh, and there was the government was trying to get those drug powers back then. So they were they were appealing the the lower courts up to the Supreme Court, and you know, it was it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who at that time said that uh, the police didn't uh, the government. The federal government didn't have any claim to uh, police drugs at all. That's really fascinating. And so that obviously, you know, changes over time. Yeah. Uh, as as the, the drug war grows, which is exactly concurrent with, because it should be mentioned that, uh, you know, just quickly that there's in England a whole movement to shut down the uh, colonial opium trade. And that doesn't actually fully end until the 1930s, which I think is insane, even though they're sort of the English government is kind of moving in that direction uh, in the late eight, the late 19th centuries, they're getting there. but And they start making all these moves to kind of start running it down and saying, okay, okay, if you're going to complain at us, we'll bring it, we'll kind of pull back on the opium and that stuff. But it's still, you know, even until the early 30s, it, it, that it's, that, that's how long it takes to fully end. Yeah, which is interesting because, like, the big explosion that really kind of turns people, I guess, against, you know, very in favor of the war on drugs is really takes place in the uh, post-war period, you know, which kind of coincides with a lot of uh, organized crime that is bolstered by intelligence services, but also lots of people with uh, nowhere to go, such as Cuban exiles in the 1960s. Like these all really do ratchet up the uh, intensity of the drug trade here in the U.S. And that's what's crazy about it is that uh, there's actually a law passed in 1942 is they pass an Opium Poppy Control Act, which d then starts giving the federal government powers to control the the opium trade, right? Yes. And this is exactly, you know, immediately before um, what we've talked about in the past is, you know, the the beginnings of of kind of the OSS involvement. It was is you know because they're starting. Uh, that's that's kind of like now during World War II. Now we have our agents in, in China. Yeah, like like we talked about in the last episode. Uh, the OSS starts in China, but then the CIA basically does a repeat of it using basically the exact same personnel. Um, and it's clear that something similar is happening in Lebanon, Turkey, and uh, France that facilitates this trade towards Florida. And 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 then in, in Vietnam. Yeah. And uh, so it, it's like this is a... Go ahead. I was going to say, we can get to that. Yeah, we can get to that. Uh, you know, I just think this is a kind of... Uh, an interesting, tragic kind of dimension to the whole history of this uh, is, is you know, how long... Because there was a whole attempt, I think, on an international level going throughout at least the first half of the 20th century 
where there was a real possibility to stop opium from, mm-hmm. you know, to stop the global opium trade, right? Right. Uh, you know, there was an effort to do it. Most, if not all, the nations signed on to do it. There were multiple conferences. Uh, before World War II, there had been conferences at Geneva and The Hague uh, to coordinate world opium uh, control. And they wanted to just set a, a quota and say, uh, this is the amount that's okay that we the world economy needs for uh, medical and scientific use, and we have to agree uh, not to allow production beyond that, right? Right. And then you know, then there's another UN Opium Conference in 1953 that is trying to do the same thing, um, and we sort of like you know secretly uh, go against all these conventions, and then you keep the opium trade going to the benefit of a kind of an interesting mm-hmm. group of guys. Um, yeah. Yeah. And also like, it's very, I think important to point out that this guy who employs all these ex CIA Cubans, Santo Traficante, he is one of the uh, gangsters that we did kind of enlist, enlist support from, you know, with Bay of Pigs invasion and like kind of attempts to assassinate Castro. So there's a pre-existing history there that when the CIA kind of steps back, the organized crime element marries itself deeper to these uh, these exiles. Yo, and you know, it, it's like one of the things I also found interesting was because you pointed out about how the DEA actually gets made is it's Nixon's move because mm-hmm. he's trying to basically take, uh, you said that the um, that the programs that were set by Johnson actually fully relied on the CIA right. to for all of its intelligence. Yeah, the, the, the BNDD, it didn't have its own intelligence like gathering uh, apparatus for, for international affairs. I think that's kind of important. And so it was... Um, reliant exclusively upon the Central Intelligence Agency for its information, um, which is interesting because you kind of have a split between it where there's an international division, but then there's kind of a domestic division. And the domestic division actually does take very good steps at curbing the uh, drug Drug trade, and in the summer of 1970, the the BNDD they launched this thing called Operation Eagle, right? And this is like a sting operation against like heroin and cocaine traffickers in a bunch of different cities like Los Angeles and Miami. And the sting in Miami was by far their biggest one. It was targeted almost exclusively at Santo Traficante's uh, networks. Seventy percent of the people who arrested and Operation Eagle's Miami sting, they were all Cuban exiles who had been previously uh, trained by the CIA. You know, and a large majority of that 70% had personally participated in the Bay of Pigs invasion and like the related ops around it. Oh my God. And um, I'm just going to name a few names. There there was uh, Juan Restoy, and he was an Operation Mongoose veteran. Uh, His trafficking partner, Mario Escadar, um, he was also a CIA veteran, and he would get released from jail on a technicality and become a cocaine kingpin in Miami later. So it's interesting, you know, this this is happening because they do basically bust, you know, either like 
pe- people who had direct links to the CIA just a few years prior. It, yeah, it's really it is interesting. So I mean, Johnson he goes to Congress. He sends a message. Uh, t- he talks to them he's in February seventh, nineteen sixty-eight, and he's like, he says, "This administration and this Congress have the will and the de- determination to stop the illicit traffic in drugs, but we need more than the will and the determination. We need a modern and efficient instrument to transform our plans into action." And this leads to uh, what's called the Reorganization Plan One. Uh, it, it abolishes the Bureau of Narcotics and the BDAC, and which you know another precursor and. Uh, it, it forms this uh, Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, right? And they, they right. Uh, let's see, they have about 600 agents, I guess, when they start. And um, then in July 14th, 1969, Nixon sends Congress a mes- message and he says, within the last decade, the abuse of drugs has grown from essentially a local police problem into a serious threat to the personal health and safety of millions of, Mar- of Americans. Uh, the number of addicts was now esti- is now estimated uh, in the hundreds of thousands, and half those are, are being arrested on drug charges uh, are under 21 years of age. And so then that leads on October 27, 1970, um, to the the passage of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act, right? And so this is what this is how the DEA is then formed, right? And so they're they're you know we're gonna see this again when we are talking about Iran Contra and the war on drugs that's Reagan uh, again kind of like saying these same things mm-hmm. and there's there's a, a whole double faced kind of Janus yeah thing about what's going on and it's very clear because like when around the time that the the Nixon administration was like saying these things they were also trying to what they wanted to do was to set up kind of their own drug law enforcement institution that could be run directly from the White House right and um, this is you know like we talked in the last episode about how Nixon kind of really wanted to circumvent a lot of Washington bureaucracy and also cut a lot of agencies out of the process Uh, this would be another instance of that and so they set up what was called a special narcotics action and intelligence group whose personnel actually overlapped with the plumbers and when they were staffing this uh, E. Howard Hunt our old friend from the CIA he begins pushing for a guy named Lucian. He's from China. He's he and it's E. Howard Hunt who was in the, uh, uh, the OSS in the same fucking thing. Yeah, the the he he's OSS veteran of detachment one hundred one. Oh my god! Who they were trafficking opium, and so he starts lobbying Nixon to put a guy named Lucian Conin, who I think we've mentioned before, in this narcotics unit. Conin is one. He's a member of the Corsican Brotherhood. He's a gangster. Two, he was part. He was attached with that OSS unit that we literally just mentioned. And three, he served directly under Lansdale. Uh, and this is the guy that E. Howard Hunt is trying to get in in this narcotics squad. And I think that this is really important because this narcotics squad that Nixon's trying to form cuts the CIA out completely. And here we have E. Howard Hunt trying to get somebody in, right? Yeah, and mind you that, um, you know, he was in Vietnam too and part of the Saigon military mission, right? Remember? Yeah. As, uh, yeah, so it's like yeah, yeah. Uh, he was working with Michael Hand and Nugent Nugan- 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 Bank. <laughs> yeah, I- I- exactly. Uh, it- it's, really, it's really bizarre. And Nixon, to his credit, does not give the job to Conine. 
he gives it to an ex-FBI agent named uh, William Sullivan. And at this point, the BNDD is not completely gone. Um, and uh, Conin is like, they, they kind of develop like an international side that circumvents the CIA, but Conin is put in charge of their international intelligence part. So the CIA is cut out, but a CIA agent is running it. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't, it's, it's, how, how do we let all this, all these, all these different things happen? I mean, this is like a huge, uh, you know, one of the many tragedies of, of kind of the 20th century that uh, this happened and it sort of happened in the way that it did because it's like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but it, it's, yeah, I was going to say it's just interesting because it's, you know, a lot of people when they think about like CIA stuff, they don't think about this kind of stuff about where it's like bureaucratic structures and hijacking bureaucratic structures. In, well, I mean, that's infiltration for you. Yeah, I mean, that's it to a T. And so, I mean, the, you know, now we can, re, you know, recapitulate kind of the, the Pierre Dale Scott hypothesis here because you know, we're, we're going to talk more about some of this stuff later because once we get into the 70s, it's like that's yeah uh, kind of when the when some of the, the relevant stuff starts happening with... Uh, yeah, we are right at the cusp. So uh, maybe we can, we can switch to oil and kind of like make, make that crossover. And, yeah. So there's like a confluence uh, kind of with the Peter Dale Scott uh, notices with the oil and the and the the opium, right? And it's like, right. It's it's kind of a classic thing. I mean, you always we're going to Iraq, no no blood for oil, kind of stuff, right? Right. And um, you know, it, I think it's just like there's there's a lot more going on uh, on there once you start getting into the, the history of how the oil industry happened, right? Um. One thing that I actually did not was not completely aware of was that uh, you know the oil industry first of all it really only begins in 1959 or 1859 I'm sorry uh, and initially it's all about uh, lighting oil right right they don't have a automobiles then they don't have uh, everything is steam and coal is how the industrial revolution is going so that's how uh, actually the you know petroleum industry gets going. And I you know, wrote all my little notes for you, Ed, so you saw it's like, um, you know, oil, you know, in various forms has been known going back to an, antiquity mm-hmm. uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, it was used in, uh, you know, ritual ceremonies and, you know, ancient Mesopotamia and, you know, at the site of Baghdad like 5,000 years ago. Love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> very appropriate. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's it's like has been around for a really, really long time and mostly has been used medicinally, right? Right. Uh, that's basically how it was used through the Middle Ages and, uh, you know, into the 19th century. I mean, they still use petroleum to make pharmaceuticals. Um, but basically around, uh, you know, 1840 or so, uh, that's kind of all of a sudden there's an emerging industrial idea of like, why do we still have candles? Uh, you know, maybe we should use, uh, is there another better way to light people's houses? And there's a few reasons for that. It's like, uh, the sperm whale, uh, is going extinct, you know, Moby Dick kind of maloes what you can imagine is that, you know, uh, sperm whale oil, uh, had been the standard for like the highest quality light that you could get. Oh, um, yeah, so, you know, if you were well-to-do or whatever, if you were, uh, you know, a scholar or something, you'd, you'd be reading by 
sperm whale oil light. Uh, and uh, you know, I would love to read one of those books. Yeah, uh, you know, you you'd have your little sp- little lamp burning the sperm whale oil, and yeah, yeah. I, I want to see if I can find some. <laughs> uh, no, you're gonna restart the um, the the sperm whale, yeah. uh, the the whaling industry based on this. I guess this is this is part of my persona as the admiral. <laughs> uh, I guess you maybe you could get it back from from Japan. It's all coming together. I wonder if they they still use sperm whale oil over there in lamps, you know, for very patrician people. I don't know. Well, if if, if anybody knows, tweet at us about this. Yeah. So it's like uh, you know, originally it's all you know. People just know uh, it's it's called bitumen is the original kind of like form in which oil was known. And it's always there's always been kind of like seepages is what it's called of like you know uh, oil coming to the surface uh, uh you know it, it's not really wasn't that rare i mean it's been noted like a, a lot through history mm-hmm. um and you know obviously in the ancient near east and and you know that was a very common place where that happened which later led to people thinking about oil being there um, but you know, around 1840, it's like that's sort of when you, you get you get some people uh, all doing little scientific experiments, trying to come up with new um, new kinds of of uh, lighting oil, and they they're going to these different kind of rock substances and mineral substances, trying to extract fuel from it based on kind of these observations that people have made over the centuries about you know this these seepages and it's they call it rock oil i mean back then if you said oil people would assume that you meant like olive oil or like a cooking oil or you know something organic oil like that right right um so originally when people start experimenting with this stuff and trying to you know derive fuels from it they call it rock oil and you know it also is interesting to me that it is pretty common for people to just like drink it as a tonic really as like a medicinal tonic yeah Ooh. Yeah, you you know back then. I mean, this is like the snake oil kind of stuff of that era. Yeah. Um, so that that's kind of like the, you have a, a couple of people who are inventing then you know um, paraffin oil and then um, kerosene uh, around you know uh, eighteen fifty or so is when the, those are the processes for getting those are, are derived. And they were originally deriving them from from just different kinds of like from asphalt from rocks. Um, uh, but there was no overall like kind of uh, scientific idea about like petroleum. Um, so then in America, people were finding this weird rock oil in Pennsylvania, and the, the, from seepages, it's just like here's some rock oil is coming up out of the ground. Like what is this? We don't even know. Let's just drink it. You know, stuff like that in Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, and really, I mean, it's like a whole cottage kind of industry was developing, and not only in, in America, in like Pennsylvania, but also in, in different parts of the world, like in Eastern Europe. And, uh, you know, people were, they were basically just like collecting this by hand, like digging little holes in the ground with like a little, sh- you know, shovel trying to find the oil seeping up, uh, you know, putting into pails. There's no like refining or anything like that, or actually, you know. Yeah. Um, it's very, it's very quiet. It's very what? It's very quaint. It is very quaint. I mean, that's kind of like it's. There's like a folkloric aspect to this story that I wasn't aware of. Maybe if you're from Pennsylvania, you know more about this. Yeah, I, I'm very, I'm very charmed even just by the words uh, rock oil. Yeah, it's like uh, uh, you know, maybe if you're from Pennsylvania, you're more aware because like this is where the first actual oil well um, 
get started is in you know a little no nowhere town in like the the remote like western frontier of Pennsylvania, <laughs> and you know I know uh, you know there will be blood right uh, that movie it's like yeah. it, it all happens out west he's like in California and stuff, and mm-hmm. um, you know it makes sense to us I mean that's where we would think oil would be. And he's like a prospector out, like in the late nineteenth century, trying to get oil out there. And it's like, yeah. Uh, it, it, actually, in reality, it's like it, it was in Pennsylvania that it started in like the, you know, sixty eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, and then it moves to Ohio. It moves west from there. It takes quite a while for you know, but it doesn't make it out to California that you know immediately. That's not where the oil industry starts. So I don't know. Uh, I was interested to find that out, um, but. Really, yeah, all the oil is starting out in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and so there's this guy uh, who was just like a teacher's name, uh, was uh, Bissell. Um, and he was going around kind of traveling north. He had health problems. He was working down south and he was moving back up north. And he was passing through uh, you know, Pennsylvania and he starts seeing these people going around collecting this, this rock oil out of the ground and how crude it is. And it's like, there's a, you know, this, it's this little town and there's like 150 people who live there and they're supporting themselves with like this weird primitive oil economy. Uh, you know, it's there's something. It, it was called Titusville, Pennsylvania. It's like there's a whole little weird. It, I I love it. I'm like really into this this story. I didn't know about this. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but you know, he starts seeing this stuff, and you know, he apparently um, then sees uh, an advertisement in like a, a pharmacy for rock oil tonic, right? And it it has on the the picture of it. Mm-hmm. It has all these oil well derricks, right? But they're not oil well derricks; they're salt oh, okay. derricks. Because that's where that's where the drilling comes from. Is, is, is you know, it actually comes from China, like we were talking about before. It's a Chinese technology, but it starts getting into the West in 1830 of how to you know actually do that kind of like um, drilling for salt, and that's how it's originally used. So the that's not being used to collect oil originally. Or anything. It wasn't developed for the oil uh, industry, um, but he has the idea based on seeing that because the the whole thing is like with these seepages, they were drilling for salt, and then apparently this, you know, you'd get this rock oil residue would, would you know come as a byproduct of it, right? And so they would then package that and sell it and tell people just drink, yeah. just drink this, and it's good, it's good for you. It will uh, help you with your gout or something, right? And so Bissell sees this and he's like, he starts putting the pieces together. He's like, what if I go and get some weird rock oil from Pennsylvania and, you know, I use a salt drilling method and to do it and so I don't have to dig for it and then I can sell my own kind of kerosene, right? Because that's, at that time, that's, you know, those are the oils that are starting kerosene, paraffin, and the, you know, the market's kind of developing for it. And then at the same time, there's called, you know, um, the kerosene lamp is invented. It's actually, uh, you know, was invented over in Eastern Europe um, and, uh, you know, part of the Aust- Austrian-Hungary, uh, Hungarian Empire. And they, uh, you know, start manufacturing these lamps um, and in Vienna and they start like pumping them out into the global market. And so this is where the oil industry actually comes from. I didn't, I didn't know about this. I found it really interesting. I- um I didn't know any of this, and I, I'm so impressed at like the sudden depth of knowledge you have over just oil in general, but also the history of the oil industry. <laughs> well, this is a really you have this book. You, one of the really good books about it is the prize. I thought you had that one. 
I, I had it, but I never read it, and I couldn't. I couldn't find it. I looked everywhere for it. I would really recommend. It. I mean, if, you know, I'm just uh, found this all this out by reading just a few books. Uh, the prize was one of the the better ones. It has a lot of really good information for it. It's really uh, succinct, mm-hmm. um, but it has a lot of depth to it. That kind of runs you through a lot of the key points. Uh, there's another one called the First Oil War, um, which was very good for the the Russian oil industry. There was uh, one. Uh, that was actually about, uh, it's called, uh, what is it? The uh, oil, god, oil God and Gold, hmm. um, which is about the Saudi oil industry. I love that. I was totally absorbed by that one. So if you're interested, you, you want to know more about what I'm you know, talking about right now, just go read some of these books, you know, because, uh, you know, they expand on, on this, these stories more, right? But um, what, what basically ends up happening is they, they, put this company together, right, based on this idea that Bizzle has. Uh, and they don't have an overall theory of kind of petroleum, right? Um, right. So they don't know really that you have crude oil and then from crude oil you can uh, extract all these different fuels. And kerosene is one of them. And, uh, you know, gasoline is another one of them. And, you know, uh, lubricating oils come. So it's all about how you refine it and how long, like, the hydrocarbon chains are. And it, it, But they don't know that at the time. So Bissell is, like, just thinking, like, here's this rock oil. He doesn't know anything about it, right? Right. Uh, but he thinks it's, like, different and that he's going to uh, use it to, uh, you know, market his own lighting oil. And really this is you know, true, like, this is crude oil that he sees. So, you you know, uh, he just, that is actually only really found out when they started doing the scientific study of it. And this is actually, uh, they commissioned the first uh, scientific, like, chemical study of of oil Mm -hmm. um, based on this. In order to promote this company and get investments for it, they go to a famous American chemist, um, who was, you know, one of the one of the leading scientists in America during that early era? Do, do you know his name? Yeah, I have it right here. Let me see. Um, yeah, where is it? Silliman. Uh, uh, his name was uh, Benjamin Silliman Jr. and he was commissioned at a cost of five hundred twenty-six dollars and eight cents to in, to produce basically the first scientific analysis of crude oil. And you know, incredible. Yeah, they go to him and they they say, "We have this weird rock oil we found. Can we use it to make like a uh, lighting uh, fuel of some kind?" They don't even they don't fucking know what it is. So they ask this guy to produce the study, and he comes back and he says. Um, you know, this is actually ideal for doing this. This is really good. <laughs> this is uh, way better than the kerosene that they're making through this other, you know, these other processes. Um, and actually, the, it almost doesn't even, they don't even get the study almost because they can't afford to actually pay the guy up front for it. Whoa. Um, and he won't even release it to them. So he kind of like holds the study hostage and he goes on vacation. <laughs> and they're like desperate to start up this like stupid company to go and try to get these, these, uh, the rock, uh, oil. The rock oil from like the holes in the ground in Pennsylvania. And it's like, uh, you know, it's like true country bumpkin, like American huckster kind of weird shit. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that so much. Uh, this yeah. is such a great story. Well, the, what, then what happens, uh, you know, is that, uh, there's a, they start this company. They they are able to pay for the study. They get it, and then they get investment from it. They go around and show it to people, and then uh, they hire this guy. Right, one of the investors. Um, he lives in like a hotel in uh, a Connecticut. New, it's all New Haven. These guys are living in New Haven, and then he uh, is living in this hotel. And there's this guy there. Uh, his name is Edwin Drake, 
And he's like a laid up uh, railroad worker. <laughs> and he's just hanging out, living at this hotel. And uh, he's just like a, kind of like a nice guy that people like. And he tells funny stories. And so the, this, the investor for this company, um, the Seneca Oil Company, is, he goes to him and he says, do you want to be the agent for our rock oil enterprise, right? We're going to drill for rock oil. <laughs> and the guy is like, I'm not doing anything. All right. And I, he has one of the things that they actually hire him for is that he has a free railroad pass because he worked for the, the rail industry. So he doesn't have to pay to go back and forth between Pennsylvania and New Haven. And that's like his one of his biggest qualifications. <laughs> so um, the, the investor actually has this idea that uh, in order to kind of like uh, prepare the townsfolk of, of of this little bumfuck town that about uh, what their business, what they're going to be doing. He's kind of, he cables ahead. He's like, okay, I'm like sending, we're sending our agent over from the Seneca Oil Company uh, and his his name is uh, Colonel Drake and you should show him a lot of respect and stuff. And then this guy just shows up. Uh, he's not a colonel. He's not, he doesn't have any military experience. And he just starts going around like looking for drillers and trying to like tell people that he's going to drill for oil, uh, for rock oil. And it's going to, you know, he's going to use it. Uh, he, he says that he's going to be able to attach a hand pump like for water um, to uh, the well for this and he's just going to pump oil out of the ground. And the people are like I imagine it must have been like the kind of like the, I don't know, Monty Python thing in that movie where there's like the poor peasants in the middle ages like just shoveling like little piles of, of, of mud, you know? You remember that little scene? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you see that, but yeah, it's like, I imagine it's like that with these people in, in, in Pennsylvania who are just like scrounging around in, in the ground, like pailing out oil from the mud and stuff. And this weird guy shows up, he's he's like... You know, I need drillers to help me drill for oil. <laughs> this is going to like change everything. <laughs> and so they all think he's like nuts. They think he's like deranged. And then he's he's able. They eventually are able to do it. Uh, you know, he they they strike oil. <laughs> and um, let's see, it's on. Uh, I have the actual the date here that they they do it. It's at uh, August twenty seventh, eighteen fifty nine. Uh, at 69 feet, they they hit oil, and he does do it. He puts the the pump in, he pumps out, and there's like a whole little crowd of people gathered there because he's like by that point he's known as the the resident kind of weirdo or whatever. Yeah, the crazy oil driller. Yeah, they all come around to like see what he's doing, and he actually does what he said he was going to do, and he pumps it out of the ground with a hand pump, and that's how the oil industry begins. For real, um, because they like go absolutely ballistic seeing this, and so uh, it starts actually, you know, an oil rush mm -hmm. where it becomes like an absolute mania in America for people to run over to Pennsylvania to Titusville, Pennsylvania, to try to get rich off of rock oil, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's actually oh man the beginnings of the oil industry. It's such like a weird folkloric kind of like yeah. It's somebody should make a movie of this and do it well. And yeah, instead of there will be blood, uh, this is... <laughs> yeah, this is the charming version. Because, I mean, then, then this is, you know, then uh, how Rockefeller enters the picture, right? So yeah. there will be blood is more of the Rockefeller kind of reality. Yeah. Because there's so much destruction that happens with this uh, early oil industry, right? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, they actually use British game law, um, common law, uh, there's a principle where if you know you kill an animal, uh, you know on your estate because in England obviously all the aristocrats they have their stupid little preserves where they get to hunt and you know no one is allowed to hunt there 
right? Because the yeah, fucking hate it. Yeah, I you know I yeah I hate it too. But there's there's the principle that like if uh, somebody shoots a you know an animal that was on your land previously or lived on your land and it wandered over to a neighboring estate and a neighbor shot it, it's like you can't sue them, mm. you know, for killing your animal that you wanted to kill, right? Right. This is like what the queen is about, or like the the crown is about, you know. Never seen it. <laughs> no, I I, I I see people talking about it, but it has like a, you know, she goes on her her precious little preserve, and there's like the the thousand point buck or the the, the, the stag, the thousand point white stag that like anoints her as like the ultimate queen or something, you know. But you know, this is the the, the legal principle from common law that kind of governed that. And so that becomes the foundation of the oil industry. <laughs> right. Uh, because obviously everyone's super greedy. They all think they're going to become millionaires based on it. It's like Bitcoin, basically, is how this starts. Is just uh, Yeah, it's just speculative rushes. Yeah. And so, uh, and it's all based on heating oil. There's not, uh, or lighting oil. So it's not like a huge thing of like, uh, uh, people necessarily don't need this. You know, they like it. It's definitely better than having a candle. But it's, it's still like there's nobody knows really what you can do with it or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, uh, it sets it up to crash a lot early on, um, and it, it only takes like a six years to crash it. Like it, you know, they start out. It only starts in you know fifty nine, and then uh, by like sixty six or you know sixty five, it's like they're producing millions of barrels of oil out of this out of this place, <laughs> and there's just not really demand for for that much kerosene at that point. Um, you know, doesn't the the market for it isn't developing in parallel with the amount that they're trying to produce because everyone is trying to get rich. Um, but John D. Rockefeller, he starts out in Cleveland at the you know very tender age of sixteen. He goes and tries to get into business there. He he enters a firm and then he starts his own business with a, uh, another partner and they're trying to sell like groceries, like a, a be a supplier of like pork and stuff. This is what his firm originally does. And then, uh, you know, right around, he starts that company in, in 59, in 1859. And then immediately afterwards, um, you know, is when they strike oil for the first time. And so his company, his early company, starts getting into doing the, uh, uh, you know, refining. He, they, they, they start selling it and it's, it's um, excuse me, it's successful. So then they decide with his partner to build a refinery, <laughs> right? And they're going to get in on the ground floor of this. Are, are, what, is their first company called Standard, or was it called something else? I don't know what the name of his first company was because I mean, uh, what actually ends up happening is you know uh, it, 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 he buys his partner out, and uh, you know he he sort of enters this megalomaniac kind of like I'm going to build up the whole oil industry in my image. Yeah, the oil god. Yeah, he is the oil god. It's like because <laughs> he does uh, basically and. Uh, just the 1860s uh, basically become like the the oil god yeah. based on this. Uh, it's like he uh, has this vision of extreme vertical integration and uh, extreme consolidation where he immediately is out there like he's buying boats on the Hudson River, he's buying warehouses, he's like uh, buying timberland to make barrels for, to transport the oil. It's like he has this huge... Yeah, he controls every dimension of his operation. Yeah. None of it's outsourced. Except the drilling at first. He doesn't even do the, you know, that's the last thing that he gets into. Oh, interesting. Um, but really, yeah, he starts as, uh, doing in the refinery part of it. Um, but he has a lot of contempt for the drillers, the speculators out there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, uh, you know, what ends up happening is they're crashing the oil economy all the time. Um, and he's the only one who can kind of weather it because he's so methodical and like disciplined that he has all these business principles about like how, you know, he's always, he makes his, his uh, kind of method where he's always holding enough cash so that he doesn't get uh, into any trouble. He doesn't have to accept outside financing to keep him afloat. He always, you know, is very careful about being solvent. So as these crashes are happening and people are being ruined, like all these bumpkins, that's so funny. It's like, you know, uh, I'm going to go fucking pump rock oil out of the ground and become a millionaire. And then like two years later, the oil economy crashes again and they're like ruined. It's like, what? Yeah, just it, it's, yeah, it's exactly like Bitcoin. It's a perfect comparison. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he's the only one who really, you know, he has the vision of it, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's not, he's like, this is going to be something real. It's going to be a huge industry. I can see the potential of this. And I'm going to control it. And, you know, he's the one who's weathering the storms. And then when uh, you know, the crashes happen, he starts buying people out. And then he's he has this, all these schemes that he's doing with, like, um, uh, rebates on the railroads. Uh, because with the shipping of it, and it's like, uh, not only do the, because the, he's shipping in such bulk, not only do the railroads give him a discount, but they actually do this fucked up thing called, uh, you know, where they're actually... Um, charging other customers more to transport and then giving him the, the excess money from it. Um, oh. And he's using these different kind of like, you know, promotional deals that the railroads have to kind of like shut down all these other businesses. And, uh, you know, we'll talk you know more about this later because there's, there's kind of some other, uh, there's a, an aspect of this that's going to be really important, I think, you, you know, Ed, with what we were talking about with... Um, the the point of all this is that like this is kind of where the CIA starts coming. I don't mean that in a literal way, but I think this is where a lot of the intelligence practices come from. Yeah, um, I, I could definitely see this because this is what uh, gets Rockefeller into a lot of trouble. Um, you know, by 1880, he is entering the public eye a lot more, and they're writing exposés on him because uh, the oil war starts. Yeah, right. And so all the little all the little uh, drillers that he's putting out of business. Uh, he's like they're setting up front companies really is to buy people out and to kind of manipulate the oil industry and to control what all these little suppliers are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he's you know uh, has all this uh, corporate espionage kind of network that he's setting up. Um, and by the 1880s, he, they start getting exposed for that, right? And it's an 18. 18- yeah, and this is like the classic like kind of the period when like the muckraker starts to emerge, you know, and and what they called like yellow journalism. Which were just people who made their career like kind of peering into corporate malfeasance. As the corporate, I mean, this is when we get the huge multinational uh, conglomerated corporation, right? At the same time. Yeah. This is when, like, in Europe, all, all the Marxists are analyzing monopoly capital, you know, or like finance capitalism. And they're like, oh, it's not a free market anymore. It's a, you know, quasi planned economy from these massive cartels. Yeah, because what ends up happening is this is concurrent. I think we've mentioned this before, but this is uh, Sullivan and Cromwell, which you know the the Dells brothers end up running later. Yeah, um, they're the ones who, uh, at this exact time, are setting up the law in New Jersey that allows uh, uh, that that make uh, shell corporations possible. Right? They make it possible for yeah, yeah, hold companies, yeah, holding companies for a corporation. <laughs> which I mean, that's how a shell corporation works. Yeah. Well, the thing it makes it makes it possible for corporations to own shares in other corporations, 
Mm-hmm. So obviously you can set up a corporation which owns all of the resources or, or uh, assets or capital and then allow a shell corporation to own the shares of that corporation, right? Yeah. Exactly. And we're going to see about three dozen versions of this going forward in this episode. Is that it? What? Is that it? Only three dozen? Uh, it, I'm being generous. It's like 300. I can't. Uh, bro, like every fucking time I talk to you, uh, you know, you you have like six more that you mentioned for the first time that I've never even heard of. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I left a good portion out of my notes just because it would be too much. Yeah, and, and you should see. You should like every time that I talk to Ed, it's like uh, he he starts like listing all the new acronyms I've never even seen before. He's <laughs> like, no, now it's the USP. Uh, the USPM is now. I found out that they have Ed Wilson on their you know board, and it's like there's a lot of a lot of these shell corporations. The shell corporation is very very important. Yeah, I'm gonna say. It's like, yeah, I hadn't really thought about how important it truly was until just now. Like, you can just add that to the list of essential things like drugs, guns, oil. Well, this is what, no, this is what I was trying to say is that um, the, this is the real reason it's important because uh, you, you see how this is functioning with Rockefeller, right? And he's using all these shell corporations. And then right. at the same time, like we've talked about, it's William Sullivan from Sullivan and Cromwell who actually is working with Standard Oil's lawyers. You know, eventually uh, uh, in 1870 is when Standard Oil gets formed by Rockefeller, right? Because he spends the 1860s kind of like building his empire. Yeah. And then by 1870, he's reaches a point where he sets up Standard Oil oil and now he's like the the oil tyrant of the world right right and really from right away early on he's already exporting oil internationally and it's going into europe and it's already getting into like russia right mm-hmm. uh so it's crazy to think about how quickly this industry developed from it literally the first oil well being drilled in 18 like 59 to now uh you know 1870 now there's like a, a huge international oil kind of industry that's developing. Well, it's also interesting because you can kind of like, you know, talk about like multiplier effects, you know, in economics, but kind of look at it with like technologies because, you know, you have these massive breakthroughs like, you know, the discovery of rock oil. And this really opens the doorways for so many innovations that follow, like new new forms of transportation, like new new ways of you know shipping automobiles, later airplanes. Um, you also have developments in this time around you know uh, electricity, which isn't you know it's a little different, but um, uh, new, new forms of communication. So you have all these things that really allow a more integrated world, which only allows things like you know these business practices and the these, you know, commodities to spread more around the world. They reflect back and forth on each other. And this is, yeah, this is what I I was mentioning to you about how it's interesting that this is how the oil industry starts and that it's uh, lighting oil. And that's not just interesting just because it's not what you'd expect. It was interesting to me because uh, there's like, at the same time when kerosene is developed and stuff, people are like writing health manuals about it and about like using the new light to like improve their lives and it's going to improve public health. And it's like it—it's part of like the standardization of like time in the industrial revolution. The you know kerosene is like it does. It isn't just lighting things. It's like you know uh, putting the world on schedule. Yeah, this is all kind of forming like this massive uh, these systems of coordination, and with each innovation, it just deepens the way that they can coordinate all the different elements. Yeah, and so that's you know because we've been asking for a long time. That's kind of one of the questions that we keep having. 
is about like why around, you know, 1880, 1890, why is there just like this exponential like blow up, right? Yeah. That's one of the things that you first like said to me like months ago is like you, you know, you were talking about how you wanted to like write a book about, um, you know, uh, corporate structures, right? Mm-hmm. And like where some of this stuff comes from, and you were sort of like looking into it, and you know, it's like you know, I think it's around like eighteen ninety. It's like something starts happening, and it's like <laughs> this is, I think, like this is it. Is I know we we figured it out. We worked backwards from the CIA <laughs> to it. Uh, well, you know, we'll talk more about that. I mean, that's a little, you know, when you start getting into kind of the cybernetics stuff and the foundations, that's one thing that I did find interesting, is that uh, that's just kind of Rockefeller's character where, you know, this is how he runs um, Standard Oil. And then, like, his original business partner actually is, like, describing him and all these, you know, he's methodical to an extreme. And, you know, it's something that, like, was off-putting to some people about his personality. He's very cold, very analytical, very good at uh, mental arithmetic, Mm. um, very single-minded in his business. And he wants to get the oil industry organized. And... uh, then the same guy sets up the Rockefeller Foundation, and it's sort of like that's when you start getting the social, scientific, like managerial methods of control. Yeah, you have like the Social Sciences Research Council that's set up like shortly after that. And these are all, yeah, it just you approach society the way that I guess he approaches business practices. So yeah, it's sort of I uh, reading about him now. It's like there's something in his personality that has disposed him towards this. It's really, I wonder. I wonder what caused it. <laughs> I'll look. We'll look more into. It. I mean, because uh, what ends up happening, I just you know, yeah, is that this? So Standard Oil is originally controlling everything, and the Rockefeller Empire is building up, and then it's like uh, in Russia is the second place that oil develops, uh, and it's in, in 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 Azerbaijan in the the Caucasus, and it's actually the Nobel Brothers. Uh, the you know Alfred Nobel's brothers, um, you know uh, he he he's from a whole family, right? And the whole story is he he's rich from inventing dynamite, and his brother dies. Uh, this is Alfred. His, one of their brothers dies from nitroglycerin accident oh. <laughs> as as like a kid. Do you know? You I mean you know how the Nobel Prize comes about, right? And that's that's the story of it. No, I didn't know this. Is it, well, so you know, uh, apparently Alfred Nobel was like guilt stricken or whatever. Oh, okay. Uh, for inventing dynamite, uh, which he thought was like a terrible weapon or something. So that's why he starts the Nobel Prize is to you know make a penance for that. It's like uh, uh, a solve for his soul. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's, it's oh. kind of bullshit um, because his brothers uh, were weapons manufacturers too. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, for uh, real. That's that's sort of like what they were doing. Uh, when they discovered oil, I mean, they're in St. Petersburg, right? Right. Uh, and so they have to go and uh, they ha- have a contract from the Russian military to build rifles, right? This is kind of where the the Nobel family fortune actually comes from. It's from all these weapons, right? And so it's from the uh, their their father originally was moving from Stockholm to Russia. Uh, in order to make mines, like naval mines, for uh, mm-hmm. the Russian military is basically where they where they got started. So Ludwig Nobel, he you know, kind of inherits this company from their father, and then basically that's they're like a weapons company for the for the Tsar's army. So that's that's kind of like where the oil uh, industry is starting here. Because when uh, Robert Nobel he's he's sent off to get these wall the uh, walnut supply for the stocks, he ends up in the Caucasus in Baku and he sees the kind of primitive oil economy that's there and all these people 
you know, trying to develop that is sort of like in the exact same way that they did, you know, similar kind of situation in Pennsylvania that we had saw. Uh, so he immediately tries to like get in on it and immediately like he just buys a refinery then and there on the, on the spot using the money that, uh, Ludwig had given him, right. Mm-hmm. To buy a uh, walnut. <laughs> and he's like, I don't even know, uh, if there, that caused a huge conflict between them or anything. Uh, cause he was supposed to buy the, the wood and then he just decided like magic bean kind of thing. Like, cause there's like, you know, right. not a huge oil in, you know, it's, it's an unproven thing at this point. But he just decides, like, let's get in on this. Let's get an oil refinery. It's those, uh, those enterprising people, you know? They, they don't realize what they're doing, and it changes the world. It, it worked out pretty well for them, because I guess, like, Ludwig Nobel, um, you know, he was, he was kind of a visionary in the same way that Rockefeller was, where he didn't, I guess, spend any time complaining about it at all or anything. He just immediately, you know, tried to make this a huge business. Uh, and so that's you know also where the the first oil tanker comes from the Zeroster. <laughs> I like the name. Uh, yeah, I mean that's like the f- coolest kind of aspect. This is like the first tanker lore that we are getting into now. This is where oil tankers come from. Yeah, is there a reason that he named it that, or did he just like the ring of it? Well, I think it's because of the 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 oil of uh, the derricks at that point. Because I posted some of the pictures on Twitter and I, I showed you and stuff, and it's like they look like ziggurats or or something like that, you know. Oh, okay, yeah. And so I imagine that's why it is. It's like they called the in, ba- uh, in Baku Black Town mm-hmm. because of the oil. It's like there's it's some, something evil about it. <laughs> this the chthonic monster rising up. Yeah, this is what uh, I don't get about that. You know, Cyclonopedia book like there's nothing about any of this in here but this is this is the real lore yeah if you're gonna like make like a uh a lovecraftian take on oil you know you have like ships named zoraster and you know blacktown and these like ziggurat figures rising up like it it basically writes itself as like mythology yeah it's so strange and the reason they had to do it was because uh, you know, the infrastructure within Russia going from the Caucasus uh, was really poor, so they, they couldn't do it overland because they didn't have good railroad access. So the, you can imagine that they were, like, loading these oil barrels up on carts or whatever and trying to, like, carry them over the Caucasus Mountains. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, that's... Obviously, they, they ended up trying to build oil tankers, the first oil tanker based on that. And then, like, Lud- Ludwig Nobel, I guess, he, like... Made a lot of uh, major design innovation and in how the, to make this possible because uh, I think there was like a ballast issue, huh? And in terms of the oil tankers, and that they had been tried before, that really didn't work because of the of the oil. It, 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 he had to kind of make some innovations there. So Ludwig Nobel is like a very serious, uh, not only businessman and manager, but he was making serious scientific innovations there for the. For the development of oil, and I think that they also were the first uh, company to kind of like uh, have a scientific laboratory and bring a petroleum engineer kind of on staff, like full time. Right. So they like they're really trying to you know develop the oil industry. But what ends up happening uh, with the rest of the story going into the you know around 1900 or so is basically the in in France the Rothschilds they. Uh, Get a whole, they, they get a sense of what's going on with this oil uh, industry as well. So they try to just go to Russia and like just buy everything and build like they build their own railroad, 
uh, and try to start competing there. And uh, the way that the oil industry becomes truly like international is that the Rothschilds, they go to England because uh, they want to break into the Asian market, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's how this is how Shell Oil actually starts. Right. Is that Shell Oil starts as just a shipping company that the Rothschild they they uh, they they contract them out. They give them a lease to kind of go through the Suez Canal, which was a huge like you know a uh, very important kind of moment for the oil industry to go to Asia, and nobody could do it because the oil tankers the the first ones were unsafe really. Uh, you know, like the Zoroaster design and stuff, they would explode. Yeah, I don't know how many of them it would explode, or like how many of them there really were, because these are some of the very first ones. But yeah, basically, uh, it's it's Shell Oil, which uh, starts off uh, kind of making the first tanker that's safe enough to go through the Suez Canal, and that's around 1892, really. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of like where we started getting into. The, the global aspect of it because they get over there, you know, Shell's taking things uh, over to Asia for the first time to sell, um, you know, this 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 kerosene kind of stuff over in Asia. And then basically they, they figure out that there's another company that's arising over out in Asia, you know, the, the Royal Dutch Company, which is, you know, a, a colonial kind of project to make oil. And that actually starts out in Indonesia. So at the same time that they're starting to go over there in the, you know, 1890s, then you have the third kind of source of oil opening up at the same time. Yeah. Is that it's in Indonesia. Those are the three, the three first kind of spots in the world. The proven commercial fields are in, uh, you know, starts out in Pennsylvania and then in, in Baku and then in, in <laughs> Indonesia. Yeah, and it's funny because like these, like um, Baku and Indonesia, the, these are places that like still have like significant like geopolitical significance that you know you just see like time and time again. And you can see like all these companies that go on for like you know a really long time. Is <laughs> that uh, we're we're basically setting it all up here because this is going to be the same people, the same companies who uh, are just uh, you're going to continue well into the 20th century into the present day. Yeah. This is, you know, it's, it's this guy, you know, Shell starts off, uh, is, is really originally called like Marcus Samuel and company, like Marcus Samuel is the guy who uh, builds the first kind of like, you know, uh, tanker that's safe enough to go through the Suez Canal. And he's like Jewish. And so he has a whole uh, kind of thing working with the Rothschild, but he becomes, because the oil industry gets so big so rapidly, he's able to, kind of overcome all the stigmas of, of being Jewish in, in English culture during that time and become like an extremely wealthy, influential man. Yeah. And then they merge with the Royal Dutch Company, obviously. Um, and then, unfortunately, what happens with the, 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 the Brand Noble Corporation is that it is um, you know, shut down by the Russian Revolution. But obviously, Shell and, and, and Dutch and you know, uh, Standard Oil are still around today. But I thought that we'd talk a bit too here just about like abiotic oil and kind of like some of the oil exploration in general because, you know, that's something that we always talk, tease, tease about but never really get into that much. And there's some crazy stories yeah. <laughs> just that kind of demonstrate the, the mania of, uh, you know, searching for oil that we'll get into. 
Yeah, there's some there's like a special quality of oil that just kind of seems to like drive people to madness and to these very kind of outrageous schemes. You, uh, just, you know, if you just go through the history of oil, and, you know, we could probably just go on for, you know, 20 hours just talking about just the kooky things that you just see just, you know, constantly running through this history. Yeah, the kooky things is like when they when uh, Shell gets over to to Asia, they have this huge problem just with the, like the tins that they use for distribution, right? Yeah. Of of of, there's actually a huge competition with the tins. Of uh, they all have like standard oil tins, and then um, you know they they try to standard oil tries to shut down the shell operation by like denying them the use of the tins to, to get their oil <laughs> distributed. So when the like the shell tankers come in, uh, you know they don't the the. You know they don't have any distribution at that point, for, so pe- they they get confused uh, when people start lining up and you know uh, wanting to buy oil. They don't have anything to even put it in, right? So then they have to like solve that by shipping out like all these uh, tankers full of tin like sheets to like then make new you know uh, mech- new receptacles to carry the kerosene away like right there and there on the spot so it's like th- this is like the wild west completely at this point yeah and you know when we think of the wild west you always think of like snake oil salesmen and you know kind of hucksters of you know every stripe and that's definitely true for oil uh, one story that came across that I, I really love, and we're not going to be able to like really talk about the the whole thing, but it, it was a scandal that happened in the, in the 1970s called the uh, Great Sniffer Plane hoax. And the the idea with the Sniffer Plane was that it had this like kind of strange device that was designed by I, I believe an Italian, either an Italian or a French um, electrician. And it would like measure gravity waves allegedly and like determine where in the ground uh, oil masses would be. And it, it's they ended up like getting the like French um, oil company Elf to invest like $150 million into it. But this by like all accounts is almost certainly a scam. Yeah, I really wonder what we're. This gets into like much later. Uh, you'll see how crazy the oil industry yeah. kind of gets, and that it goes into this whole shadow realm, which we'll get into. But this is the kind of like the madness that they do because when they even go into like Saudi Arabia, you know, I guess there, there's not really any way to just like know where oil is, obviously, or know if a country has oil. So even at this point around like 1900, uh, there's only a few kind of proven fields that they have so going to even like Saudi Arabia where now we know there's so much oil mm-hmm. at, at that time it's like they didn't know how much Saudi Arabia had they didn't know where the oil was it really uh, the only way that they can do it is just to go around and just drill for years to try to find a commercial well it's kind of a nightmarish process just like out there just constantly like dropping a well turning up nothing moving dropping another one in the desert basically in Saudi Arabia and you are just going around for like 5 years uh you know <laughs> but you know they 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 have their intuition and they have like different ways that they do it like based on the geology of it and uh you know, that so they're not t- totally blind, but really at the same time, it's like it's quite a process to kind of find a, an oil field that is is pretty big that they can kind of exploit. I mean, it's it takes a lot of resources 
So really, no, but I don't even know. Like, yeah, it's very similar to. I mean, when you hear about peak oil, it's very similar to like gold and diamonds. You know, it's the same thing where it's just like people have kind of general ideas where these will arise, but like the the expenditure of like human effort and money into like striking a vein of one of these resources. You know, they all kind of work like that. Yeah, and it, it gives credence to all these kind of crazy theories because even with gold, I mean, they used to believe that gold was was like growing inside of the earth. And that oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah. Because you know, obviously, we're talking about like uh, oil geology and stuff right now. But even like in the 18th century, we have like mining sciences also just kind of um, you know developing back then. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the Middle Ages, they had just you know had this notion that uh, gold veins, like uh, ore veins, and just in general, were kind of like or semi-organic. They grew like underground. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I can see why you would think that. Yeah, and. It's kind of the same thing with with oil as, as well because uh, still at this point, I mean, it, the way that they kind of think that oil's formed is very complicated in the sense that it's just, you know, uh, when they say it's like a fossil fuel or whatever, they're not talking about, uh, you know, dinosaurs, obviously. It's, they're talking about like uh, plankton, mm-hmm. like huge masses of plankton, which are all over the, like the primordial oceans which just like are constantly dying and dropping down, falling down to the lower and lower pressures. And so that, you know, that process uh, is how they basically, you know, think that oil is formed. And then, you know, depending on kind of the, the conditions, like how much sunlight is able to come in through the, um, the ocean surface and, you know, be taken up by the plankton and then how far they're, they're dropping down and the different factors affecting their decomposition and stuff is that gives rise to different kinds of, different, different kinds of, you know, oil, different qualities. Uh, and, you know, there's various explanations for why oil oils in some places and not others based on kind of those factors and where they're present in the world. And, you know, so basically that then, Leads into like the idea of abiotic oil, uh, which is I'm pretty abiotic oil pilled at this point. Yeah, I don't even know how did that happen. It seems like we were just talking about this a couple of days ago, and then I go on your Twitter accounts like now you're full on abiotic oil pilled. Yeah, I, I've only started reading the book, so I don't have a full knowledge of it. But you know, I'm this is the Deep Hot Biosphere book. Yeah, by by Thomas Gold. It's actually like it's not like a crazy theory or anything. No, I mean, Freeman Dyson seems to have thought that it was, you know, an acceptable theory. And kind of like looking around, I was kind of surprised at how many people, like like Thomas Gold isn't really treated as a crank, which I thought that he was at first. Like there's definitely some people who are like really against him and like have, you know, launched petitions to prevent him from like publishing in journals. Which seems... Um, But then there's like a lot of like solid scientists who... You know, they might not agree with it, but they take like, um, you know, they respect him as like a scholar and, you know, don't kind of treat him as just a goofball. Because I don't even see it. Yeah. I don't even see it like really in, uh, as a huge contradiction of just the theory that they already are working from about how oil forms. And really his, his the basis of his theory isn't, you know, some, it's not totally out there. It's, it's, it's the idea of like this deep hot biosphere mm-hmm. really which is you could you know when people are talking about like um exploration of the other planets and moons in our solar system you know they they invoke a lot of the same ideas of this of like you know that life can exist much deeper down 
kind of in like thermal vents and like based on kind of the ge- like the geological deep activity of like the the heat of the deep underground being able to sustain kind of you know uh, you know biospheres of microorganisms. Right. Yeah. Which is itself, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a very romantic notion. Um, it, it, it injects some, like, you know, a, a mysterious quality to the interior parts of the Earth that, uh, you know, we don't really see. It's missing today. Yeah. This is the, you know, journey to the center of the Earth. Yeah, like, I, I get, like, the vibe of, like, you know, there's, like, you know, the old, like, amazing stories from the 40s, like, the Shaver mystery or stuff. Like, I kind of get the same vibe as that, which I like. Yeah, like, the... V- the Vril Society of like you know psychic lizards who like live inside of the Earth. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, this is obviously the way that this is framed, and you know, Thomas Gold is not. It's not like that at all. It'd be, it'd be yeah. But I'm not saying that's what it is. Yeah. Like, but you know, just kind of a kind of almost esoteric. Like, what's happening down in the Earth? You know, it's not just rocks anymore. And it makes sense. And the reason that they think the abiotic oil comes in is just kind of as a side effect of that, right? Because yeah, basically they're already kind of, they already believe that it's these huge masses of plankton uh, decomposing over time. That That's the the basis of oil. But what this is saying is that, well, actually oil is a geological kind of production, but it's actually sustains this kind of deep hot biosphere and that all these microorganisms eat the oil. Mm-hmm. And that that's why you find like fossils within oil. That's like one of the things is you know that you you can look in the oil and they find like little fossils of plankton and stuff, right? And then so he's saying that that's why that's the case is that actually oil is kind of like what the deep hot biosphere like feeds on. Yeah. So it's full of all these plankton deep deep down, and that it, you know it bubbles up over time, and then it has all these features which you know make it seem. Uh, like it's being produced from plankton, but really they just eat it. Right. It, and it, what it does, it, it kind of inserts oil production into like, uh, you know, a ongoing life, life cycle. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of has this like reciprocating kind of feedback effect between geology and biology that other, you know, interpretations don't really have. It, it becomes, yeah, it, it's a far more like ecological vision of how oil is produced than just kind of like a, a geological one. I mean, just in general, I always favor explanations of, about things like that. Mm-hmm. Like the more kind of uh, organic that it is, not in terms of like relating to life, but more in terms of like developmental of being able to kind of bring all the different factors involved and explain how they interact. Yeah, and I think that that's like um, in the Soviet Union, like ideas kind of along these lines kind of arose in the the nineteen fifties, and this was kind of how like they interpreted. Uh, um, you know, how, how oil was produced. And they always had like a very kind of like, you know, inherited from like dialectical materialism and stuff like that. This kind of idea of like mass interconnection across scales. And it's like, you know, you have these developmental processes that run across scales. So it kind of fit into their, you know, worldview. Um, plus, you know, it's kind of undermines like a lot of notions of scarcity. And so yeah, cause, there's that element as well. I mean, we, you have you have very strong feelings about like the peak oil Kind of, yeah. I am. I, um, I, I'm just like not a fan of theories that just seem extremely like tailor made to kind of like you know mass market mechanisms. Like the, 
the the idea of peak oil, you know, in a lot of respects, is like an oil trader's wet dream because you know it becomes more scarce over time and thus more valuable. Uh, so I'm, I'm immediately kind of suspicious of who produces these peak uh, oil narratives. You know, I haven't really done a deep dive, so I don't know if these suspicions are founded or not. And I'm, you know, hopefully I'm not going to get like peak oil people screaming at me and DMs on Twitter. Yeah, I don't, you don't hear about it so much anymore. <laughs> yeah, there's like some people are still into it, but I think it's been like. You know, because it's one of those things where there was like, you know, the 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 repeating prophecy, you know, and it's always like, yo, by 1985, like the world will be out of oil. And it's like, oh, by 1997, we'll be out of oil by 2005. And it's like, you know. And really, that's the that's the point. Like, I think that's like the basic kind of truth of uh, this petroleum geology is that they don't they ultimately just don't know how much oil there is. And there's really no way to actually tell. Exactly. And it's like, how do you end up when, when you have no idea really what the supply is like, you know, it's secondary mechanisms that are, you know, setting your prices. Um, and that's, yeah. And, and so that, like, when you go into a lot of like peak oil, they analyze it off like uh, price cycles, I think. And, you know, when it's not really the, directly the supply of oil that's affecting prices, you know, I just don't see how you're creating like a viable theory on that basis. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it that's why you get like the Fletcher Prouty thing where he's talking about how the oil price is kind of like fixed and, you know, made up and stuff. And it's like uh, people, you know, have tried to kind of point to that and be like, this is like a kooky, kooky thing to believe. But then you kind of like think about it, you know, based on all this, it's, uh, you know, how much it actually costs to kind of, uh, prospect for oil to discover it to like we're saying it's it's you know they spend 150 million dollars on a sniffer plane yeah. <laughs> it's like you know it, it, it's too hard to do so you get even into like the 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 fracking and stuff like that it's like the reason that they do that is i guess just because of how hard it is to find more oil mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that there's not more oil out there it's just like you know this is just cheaper yeah it like makes weird shit come out of your faucet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We, I was asking you if you ever saw you. I guess you didn't see that Matt Damon movie where he's like the fracking uh, like salesman or whatever. No, I, I you asked me, and I, I think I was like thinking of some like movie where Matt Damon plays like a tobacco salesman, or oh, I man. don't know. You know, <laughs> he was in all those movies where it was kind of you know that period like kind of towards like the end of the Bush administration when you know people like Matt Damon and George Clooney were in like a million movies that were supposed to kind of like raise awareness or kind of be like a biting satire. Uh, so they all kind of run together in my mind. Yeah, well, he, this is a particularly bad one where it's like. <laughs> it's it's supposed to be like the Matt Damon Aaron Brockovich kind of like movie where he's he's like it's kind of like a very weird feel good kind of movie about this like uh, you know fracking executive who like goes to buy this small town but then he meets like a woman at a bar and they like fall in love and then yeah, he like turns against fracking or whatever it's like um mm. but all the subtext of the movie it's just like is all of it is really weird in terms of how the whole oil industry is treated and how it all works it's like uh, you know, I don't think I'm gonna skip this one. No, you should watch it. I mean, you're we're gonna you're gonna have to watch. Uh, what was that movie we were just talking about? Uh, the the Dick Cheney movie. Oh yeah, as you're gonna see in this episode. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you if you we've ta- I've talked about that movie before. It's absolutely awful. It was the one that was directed by the Big Short guy. 
and it's like a terror that he made the Dick Cheney uh, kind of bi- biographical movie. It's totally, it's absolutely awful. But as you're going to see, <laughs> you know, part of the reason why it's so bad is that it didn't really do any of that. Yeah, and plus, like, I got to watch it because I've spent a good portion of the day like reading about Halliburton. So, you know, got to do it. Yeah. Well, this is for the next episode now. This is for the next episode now. So we don't want to like spoil it too much or anything. But I I don't know. I feel like we kind of covered the bases for a lot of the beginnings of the oil industry, for the opium industry. And, uh, you know, now I I think we want to talk about like more of the the strategy, the, the strategic thinking of like the corporate espionages and the uh, you know political geopolitical kind of like strategies of of uh, you know the heartland of like why it's important to control like Afghanistan stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I guess we'll we'll sort of get into that into the next section. Oh, sounds good. Okay, so we'll put it in you know a break here, and we'll be back in a minute. Nowadays, one-fifth of all the merchant ships afloat are tankers. They're a new branch of the traffic and profession of the sea. You see them in the wide bends of the Hooghly, moored at Singapore and Tarakan, loading beneath the tall towers of Cardon, Venezuela, probing the dawn mists of the Mersey, bringing oil from South America. You can always tell a tanker she has her funnel and engines at the stern, and she's never in port for long. It can't be. This world runs on oil. And the tanker's business is to keep it running. Look down from the North Pole and see how the oil moves round the circle of the globe. Moving into Mina El Amadi in the Persian Gulf, then through the blaze of Suez and Port Said, past the gateposts of the Mediterranean, Malta and Gibraltar, butting the Atlantic swell with her cargo of Kuwait crew. From the fields, the refineries, where the black crude is manufactured into products, the tankers form the floating chain between. And all the time, the consumers are sending in fresh demands. Across the globe, to the hub of the whole system, to the center that controls the operation of the fleet. In our case, we work from London. Of the 2,000-odd tankers in the world, we operate about 450. 200 of these are our own, Dutch, British, French. The rest we charter by time or voyage, as and when we need them. In this office, the oil you want is fitted into the worldwide pattern of transportation. Here, the tankers are routed. Out of Arctic waters, maybe into a coral lagoon, or sent from Borneo to India, or Norway, or South America. It looks humdrum enough, filling in forms, allotting tanks, but somehow through it all you can smell salt water. (laughs) 
find a ship's position by the use of position lines obtained from two different observations comes easy. After 40 years, eight bells and eight again. Noon to midnight, and the watches change once more. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand. Steady as you go. Course 059 degrees, log 93, wind northwest, force 8. At the head of the table, the master, Captain Sear. Next, the chief engineer and his wife. It's her first voyage. Trotter, the second engineer, then Sparks with the news of the world at his ear. On the bridge, Paddy, the third officer. And on watch in the engine room, the third engineer. Forty years he's been at sea. We used to watch the wind. Now we watch the engine doing it all for us. I often wonder what the old hands would have thought of all this modern chromium of ours. The men that fought the yards with the clouds cutting overhead and the sea snarling at them from below. Things have changed. Nothing but paper now, form, figures. I sometimes wonder whether I'm a master mariner or an electronic brain. Electronic brain. Electronic brain.